Welcome to the Get Over Yourself podcast. This is Brad Kearns. It really doesn't matter whether you save a thousand bucks a month or a hundred bucks a month. But the idea here is that um, as long as you keep hammering away, as long as you keep, you know, um, listening to the the universe and being open to opportunities to come your way and identifying what it is that, that you're here to do, um, it only takes a couple of really good years to make up for all the time that you didn't you know, that you didn't save here and save there. Welcome to the ultimate Mark Sisson interview. I call the show that because he's done so many podcasts talking about healthy, primal living, ketogenic eating. We've done so many shows ourselves on the Primal Blueprint, Primal Endurance channel. So my dream was to track him down. He's been all over the place and get focused on a recording that can be archived for eternity in the Library of Congress as the ultimate Marxist and show. So we got to get his whole life story going because his background so interesting, so many twists and turns and incredible insights that frame who he is today. And of course, he's a public figure and he's a persona. You might have an image of him. You see his smiling face on the mayonnaise bottle and his books and videos, but it might not be the whole picture. So I try to get deeper here and go back into our long friendship and the journey that we've had together. Okay, so we go back 30 years and we met in the endurance athlete scene way back when. As you probably know, Mark was a champ in his day in the marathon and Ironman triathlon. I'm a little younger than he, so when I came about and started on the professional circuit, he became my coach. He was a fabulous coach, learned so much from him. We kept in touch over the years, and now the last decade has been an absolutely fabulous ride promoting the Primal Blueprint movement, Primal Paleo Keto Living, producing these books and live events and educational material. So you have this public image of him stand up paddling with his six-pack glistening and then his smiling face on the mayonnaise bottle. And for sure, he's a real peak performer and a very ambitious and competitive person, very comfortable being the kingpin of his wonderful primal enterprise, this incredibly fast-growing primal kitchen phenomenon. But this old friend of mine is also a kind and funny and sensitive guy, and he, he calls himself an introvert who doesn't like big public gatherings, although he's on those constantly in the center of attention many times. <laughs> anyway, he has been such a great inspiration to me. I actually have in my secret file some of the life-changing insights that I've heard from him at the exact right time when I needed to hear them, and we're going to cover some of those in the show and also in my wrap-up show. I think you'll really really love it. And if you don't know who Mark is, I'll give you a little bio information before we kick into this lengthy and beautiful discussion together. He is the author of mega best-selling books like The Primal Blueprint and the 2017 Keto Reset Diet. He's had this blog, MarksDailyApple.com, since way back in 2006, cranking out daily content, promoting the primal paleo ancestral health movement. It's widely regarded as the top-ranked blog in the alternative ancestral health scene. He's been lauded for challenging and reshaping flawed conventional wisdom about diet, exercise, and lifestyle. 
He also presides over this dynamic enterprise that includes all our books and educational materials, a health coach certification program, and of course, the crazy fast-growing line of Primal Kitchen Healthy Mayonnaise, Salad Dressing, Catsup Mustard, and so many other wonderful products. Okay, this guy is like 64, 65 years old. I can't remember which one, but he looks good. Google him if you don't believe me. Uh, he goes back. He's going to talk about his college experience. He was on the pre-med track. He got a BA in biology from Williams College. Then he plunged into the elite endurance racing scene, ran a 218 marathon. That's crazy fast. If you're not familiar with marathon running, it's like sprinting for 26 straight miles. Then he took fourth place in the Hawaii Ironman World Triathlon Championships and has had a long career being involved in the sport of triathlon. Today, he takes out his competitive intensity on these poor young players in the ultimate Frisbee pickup games in Miami, Florida. I think you're going to love this wonderful show with Mark Sisson. So here we go. All right. Yeah. So what are we going to talk about today? We're going to go, we're going to go on a, uh, a journey okay. on the ultimate Mark Sisson podcast, starting with Miami, man. What's up? Let's let's get up to date here. I know we're visiting Malibu. We're visitors. Yep. We had to sign in at the Malibu guard gate. There is a guard gate to enter the, the the city of Malibu. They let us in. But how's it going over there? It's awesome. I mean, I really. Uh, You're living awesome. Living awesome every day. Loving Miami. Loving Miami Beach. Loving the warm water, um, the sand. Uh, great stand up paddling. Um, great ultimate frisbee. Um, fabulous gyms. I mean, it's really like a playground for me now. Yeah, for those listeners not aware, the Pacific Ocean, even in Southern California, is freezing ass cold all the time. That's a huge, it's a huge boost to go in there and enjoy swimming in the ocean, frolicking, because here we're like, we're going in, we're getting something done, we're surfing, we're paddling, but pretty soon it gets chilly. Pretty soon your lips get blue and you have to get out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the paddling is in the, the like the still still water. Somewhere? Well, I mean, you can go on the ocean side uh, for sure certain days, uh, but I've just found uh, this these inland waterways that are uh, I, they're big they're bigger than canals, but uh, they sort of uh, interconnect throughout the uh, the other side of Miami Beach, and uh, fabulous homes and fabulous boats and uh, the occasional manatee. Um, when you're great. paddling, yeah. Oh wow, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and then you're you're touring the, uh, the the coastal homes there. Yep. Checking it out. There's yep. always a sight to see. Always waving at Will Smith, singing some lyrics from Miami. That's right. Yeah. Um, what other adjustments? Is it is it nice to have just a a new place after being here so long? Yeah. I mean, that's the other part of it. It's just uh, I think Carrie and I are ready for a, a new adventure. Uh, we've been in Malibu for 20 plus years. I mean, I think 22 years now. And we've been in this uh, in this same home for 15, and it's great. I, I mean, I love Malibu. I love the people of Malibu. Um, I am completely over the state of California and its governance and its taxes and its uh, its incessant thwarting of anyone's ability to start a business. So um, you know, it's a combination of that. It's a combination of wanting to um, have a life adventure. Uh, you know, live in a new place. Um, I've, I've always been attracted to warm weather and uh, it's warm there and I love humidity. So, you know, there are a lot of uh, great reasons that we decided this would be the appropriate time to move. 
This is a guy from Maine talking about how he likes warm weather and humidity, getting it done. That's like my dad moved out from Milwaukee to Los Angeles, whatever, 60 years ago. And you know, we're hearing the stories about how he just drove on Sherman Way and saw the palm trees and like, why don't I live here? Why the heck should I go back? You know, his answer was, why, why should I go back there? It's cold. No, it's crazy. I mean, I, I grew up in a small town in Maine where, you know, 1,800, 2,000 people when I was growing up there. I mean, really small. And, um, you know, very few people left. It was, this was a salt of the earth, um, you know, Protestant work ethic. Fishermen? Was it a fishing it's scene? It's a fish, fishing village, for yeah. sure. Wow. And uh, a bit of a tourist uh, town in the summer, but mostly fishing. And uh, yeah, a lot of people stayed and a lot of people are, you know, fifth, sixth generation in that town, even longer. They go back to, you know, proud to go back to the Mayflower. <laughs> um, and I just could not see it. I mean, I, like as soon as I experienced warm weather, I'm like, why would I want to live, you know, eight months of the year in freezing cold temperature? Um, I, I mean, I go back to Maine and it's beautiful in the summertime and it's, you know, it's fantastic. But um, for me, just, I, I like to be warm more than I like to be cold. If I'm going to be cold, I want to choose to be cold. I'll go to right. Aspen, I'll go snowboarding. Cold plunging. Uh, cold plunging for sure. Uh, two minutes, not two months. <laughs> So how old were you when you were growing up in Maine, seeing a bigger picture that maybe you weren't going to stay there forever and maybe warm was better than cold? Well, I mean, I, my parents got tired of the, of the cold in Maine one year when I was in third grade and they moved to Florida um, for the school year. I was in third grade. And, and, uh, wow, how did, cool. They it, just bailed and it, said, hey, yeah, we're going yeah. to third grade down at yeah, yeah, they didn't sell Miami a, Dade Intermediate. They, they, didn't, they didn't sell a house. And we moved to Sarasota. But uh, they didn't sell a house. They just in Maine. They just, um, you know, purchased another one in Sarasota. Um, and when I say purchased another one, I mean, I remember what they paid. They paid $13,000 for it. Um, but uh, after a year there, it just didn't seem, uh, it, they didn't like it. And so we went back to Maine. And, uh, um, but I was like um, already enamored of the warm weather. And the house that we had in um, in Sarasota was sort of bordering on the eastern uh range of what had yet to be developed. So in my backyard were uh, rattlesnakes and the occasional alligator coming up from Philippi Creek and uh, certainly a lot of tortoises or turtles and things like that. And it was like a jungle. And in third grade, I thought I was Tarzan. So uh, it was perfect for me. I'd be out in the backyard playing, you know, hanging out, swinging through the, the bamboo shoots and and uh, racing through the tall grass and trying to avoid the wild animals. Well, then you got hauled back to Maine and, yeah. and stuck it out there through the school years. And um, I want to talk about some of that that upbringing. Yeah. Uh, this this is based on our drive from Tulum to the airport. Oh, right. No, right. And there you were giving this wonderful presentation yet again at PrimalCon to a packed house, yep. hitting all the talking points so wonderfully uh, about the, the grains and the sugars and the uh, becoming metabolically efficient and uh, the, the, the balanced exercise thing. And then, um, you know, I've heard it so many times. I, I was I was getting a little bored, although I did give you accolades that you nailed it. Everyone loved it. And then we're driving to the airport, and we just wound you up and got you going on some of these other things. I'm like, dude, that's going to be that's an awesome talk. We are doing that next time. And we did get into that at uh, the next Primal Con in Oxnard. I teed you up with some yeah. um, some background information because I think people yeah. people would be interested and sort of informs how you got to this point now. So um, one part I remember was the 
the outward bound month on the or few weeks on the island and then a championship race at the end. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I, so let's take pick it up from third grade. So we go back to Maine and I'm kind of like... Uh, um, oh, there's Mark. Hey, <laughs> hey you look tan, Mark. <laughs> no, back to the snow and, um, and the wet. Um, and then, it, you know, I, I, I've always been very entrepreneurial. So um, starting from the ages of 12, 13, 14, I was mowing lawns 40 hours a week in the summer, uh, ages of 12 and 13. Then uh, when I was 14, um, I had a job in the daytime painting houses. And at nighttime, I bust tables at a, at a restaurant. At 14? Yeah. Uh, and I remember um, I couldn't, the, the painting houses was fine, but I couldn't get a work permit. I had to wait till I was truly 14 to get a work permit to be able to, to, uh, to work in a restaurant to bust tables. And eventually I waited tables. Uh, but I was always interested in being and participating in the economy, shall we say. Whether it was entrepreneurial or not, I wanted to participate in the economy. I wanted to have my own money so I could buy my own stuff and feel like I was, you know, um, uh, not dependent on my parents for permission to do stuff. Um, and then when I was uh, uh, in high school, uh, I was a freshman in high school. I was too small to uh, play football, basketball, baseball. Um, I was still pretty strong because I could shovel snow like nobody's business, but um, I, I chose to run to school and r- run to and from school because it was faster than taking the bus. So as a freshman in high school, I was doing this jogging to get to and from school. Uh, and I was, um, because I was fairly smart for my age, I got placed out of some of my normal classes. And the net effect of that was I was put into an all-senior phys ed class. So now here I am, this scrawny little guy in a in a, oh, in brutal, a senior <laughs> senior phys ed class with, you know, people that just wanting to, you know, it was it was the age of bullying. So um, I got uh, mercilessly, you know, um, towel whipped and 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 I had to do multiple push ups every every day, and uh, you know, got all sorts of purple nurples and all the things that, that kids did. Um, and it was kind of a miserable time for me. Well, spring track rolled around. And I decided to go out for spring track. And because I'd been running so much, I found myself entering the mile and the two mile and the pole vault. I I had learned how to pole vault because my dad had been a pole vaulter and I taught myself how to pole vault in my backyard with a bamboo pole. So I would enter these track meets, these high school track meets, and I would be like, like I'd usually win the mile and the two mile and sometimes- As a freshman? As a freshman. Huh. So that gave me a tremendous amount of credibility, uh-huh. you know, locally anyway. Yeah, with the, with the chicks. With, well, not so much. Uh, not with the, really. Not with and the chicks. And not so much. <laughs> Marky, very strong with the boys in yeah. gym. Yeah. So anyway, um, but I'd had enough of that. By, that. by the end of my sophomore year, I'd had enough of it. My parents were getting ready to get divorced. And so I just decided I would apply to um, a prep school. And, and so I, I applied to a number of prep schools in New England. I got into Exeter, the Phillips Exeter Academy. So I wound up going to Exeter the last two years. So uh, this is your, at your own behest. You yeah. applied to, yeah. I mean, one of the most prestigious prep schools in the, in the country. Yeah. You just said, oh, what the heck? I'll just head there. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, it was the, the situation in Maine had kind of become not untenable, but I was just like bored and I, I needed more, um, you know, uh, more excitement in my life, I guess. So anyway, I got, so I, I enrolled at Exeter my junior and senior years of, of high school. So the junior year, I show up at Exeter and, and I had a running background now and I'd been doing reasonably well in track and field events in my local small right. town 
You so know, he's got swagger. He's coming in, he's going, coming yeah, in. yeah, I'm undefeated in the mile, two mile. What do you got? <laughs> what he got? And well, of course, we have the Kennedys, the Rockefellers, and some highly recruited prep runners much. from wherever. Pretty much. So we had five guys who could jump 13 six in the pole oh. vault. Um, and this is back in 68, 69. With, really. um, not the fiberglass bending poles. Oh, yeah. You're early, sacrificing. Early, no, early fiberglass poles, yeah. Um, and then, uh, and I would, you know, and I, but I, I got put on the JVB squad for uh, cross country. And I was, you know, I, I, I through the season, the first season there, I got a little bit better and I got moved up to, eventually I made sort of varsity, but at the low end of the varsity squad. Um, anyway, that summer between junior and senior years, I did this program called Outward Bound. And it's an amazing program to this day. It was probably one of the single most uh, pivotal moments of my life. And it was a 28-day um, experience on, the, on an island off the coast of Maine, on Hurricane Island. Is this voluntary or was it part of the Phillips thing? <laughs> no, 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 it was voluntary. Again, it wow. was one of these things I was looking for. This guy's going for Looking it. for adventure. Yeah. Um, head out on the highway. And uh, uh, it, again, 28 days of just amazing, you know, uh, it's, it's based around um, these uh, open, what they call pulling boats, but sailboats, 30-foot sailboats, boats, 12 people, her boat. Um, that was your crew. That was your, that was your, those are your homies for 28 days. You had to get along. You had to organize, uh, lots of, uh, rock climbing, uh, lots of ropes courses, lots of, uh, water experiences. I mean, I could do a whole show on, on how cool it was. And, and for a, for a kid who was looking for adventure, this was pretty amazing. And it was also interesting to see, City kids who got sort of forced to go do hmm. Outward Bound. What are you hated, here for? Hated the whole thing, right? <laughs> I'm here I mean, for dealing. What are I you mean, here for? I'm here voluntarily. Every day was like fabulous as far as I'm concerned. And sometimes they were literally almost life-threatening days. But at the end of the um, the 28 days, they had this thing they called the marathon. It was an around-the-island race. And the islands of Maine are, they call it the rock mount, the rock bound coast of Maine. There's almost no beaches in Maine. It's all just littered with huge boulders and, and rocks. There's very little sand. And so this race was around the perimeter of the island, a lot of which took place on these boulders. So it was literally jumping from boulder to boulder to boulder for seven miles. No trail, just get around bit, the island. A little bit of trail once in a while, but yeah. not much. And um, I, want, I wound up winning that race. And I think the time that I, that I ran held for a couple of years as the record of, uh, of it. And so that was a real um, confidence boost for me. So I went back to my senior year at Exeter and wound up being captain of the cross-country team and captain of the track team and won the biggest meet of the year, the, the Exeter Andover meet, and had a great, great season. And, and, um, and, I, and I do look back on that outward bound experience as have, having really um, simply shown me what was already there. It wasn't like it gave me any... Um, amazing new skills or new tactics. It just opened me up to the possibilities and, and showed me what I could do if I really put my mind to it and what I could do if I really um, believed in myself. Right. So when you got back to campus and you're in with already some, some good runners that you were uh, behind the previous year, yeah. you start escalating your training, uh, getting, more, getting more focused in, in daily life. I mean, it just, it was, it was interesting. I just, I don't know whether it was also a factor of uh, having matured physically, um, you know, in terms of strength and speed and endurance, but um, I just was able to dig a little bit deeper in workouts, dig a little bit deeper in, uh, in races. And, and, you know, I, I look back 
uh, on that time. And I think, you know, you and I share in common having been elite endurance athletes, and we know that this is really about managing discomfort. <laughs> you know, it's it's certainly about training hard, and it's certainly about some genetic aspect of it, but um, it's it's almost mostly about your willingness to dig deep and manage manage pain and manage discomfort. I use the term pain a little bit too glibly because it's really managing discomfort. You're not really in danger of, of uh, you know, tearing a muscle when you're doing an endurance contest. You're basically just managing the discomfort of being in oxygen debt and, um, and you know, being out of fuel and, and um, having your brain tell you it's probably time to pull over the side of the road and stop, and yet you're willing it to, to keep going. Um, you know, Steve Prefontaine was the master of that. Prefontaine would show up at any starting line, and he wasn't necessarily the most well-trained athlete there. He wasn't necessarily the most gifted genetically, but he, was, he would look every competitor in the eye and say, the one difference is I'm willing to die in this event to win. Anyway, so that was, that was a, a big epiphany for me was um, this, um, my, my being open to a much greater realm of possibilities than I thought possible. Well, now we know about the central governor theory promoted by Dr. Tim Noakes, and it sounds like, and I, I can relate to this as well, where you didn't even realize your limit. You didn't, you didn't realize that you had more there. And, you know, you, you talk to the athletes where I, I tried my hardest and I got 17th and I gave it all I had, yeah. but they didn't really, because they didn't have that confidence boost or something that kicked in. It's huge. I mean, you know, and, and you know, uh, from your experience in triathlon, and I know from my experience in, in, in running, uh, that on any given day in those events, there are 20 people who have the ability to win that race, but only one of them is going to win that day. What is, what is it that makes a difference? It's probably that, that willingness to dig a little bit deeper, to endure a little bit more discomfort or a little bit more pain, uh, and to override that governor that is the brain. Now, here's my follow-up question. When it comes to being a competitor over the long term and being, reaching the number one ranking like Mark Allen in triathlon for years and years, is it the ability to turn that off and regulate and manage that in daily life and making the right training decisions because we know these macho beasts that will go out there and, and, and be willing to drop every single day, they don't get very far because they fall apart and break down. Well, I think Mark's a great example of that. Um, somebody who managed his, um, eventually uh, learned how to manage his training um, to the point that he could um, give it all when it made the most difference. Um, you know, you can say that about Lance Armstrong too, that, you know, he didn't do a lot of these smaller races. He pointed to one race every year and, and, and managed his training that way. And, you know, whatever uh, assistance he got notwithstanding because everybody got the same assistance. Um, but I think the, th- that that's key. That um, One of the things I learned as a marathoner was, in, in too late in fact, was that I left a lot of my best races on the track the week before where I'd have these amazing track workouts. It's like, holy crap, I'm ready to run 214. I'm so willing to suffer. I can't wait yeah. till the race. Yeah. I hope I'm not too tired. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what I'm getting at is, uh, yeah. And you and I, you know, we shared that when I was coaching you, you had that same sort of, which is by the way, it's the, it's the athlete, the elite athlete mentality is I got to put in more work. You know, I have to put in more work because I understand that, you know, Mike pig down the road is doing, you know, these workouts and, um, Scott Molina is doing these workouts and, you know, all these other 
um, guys that I race week to week, I'm hearing what they're doing and I feel somehow like I'm shortchanging myself if I don't grind it out on the workouts. And there is that erroneous belief that that will then manifest itself in a better race performance. Yeah. But the real, going back to the, to, to the, to the grip, to, to the Mark Allen scenario, and, you know, I don't, I mean, Mark and I don't hang out. We don't exchange, you know, <laughs> Christmas cards. I mean, I have the utmost respect for him. And I would say, once again, that, that I think on analysis of his training, and we know from, you know, speaking with Maffetone and so on, that, that I think he was very strategic in, in how he trained and then just gave everything he had almost to a, to a fault in races. I mean, he'll tell you he left, you know, part of his, possibly part of his longevity out on the race course. Same with Lance. He, yeah. he fo- focused on the tour, knew that most of the tour he's sitting behind his teammate drafting. And then when they get to the bottom of the Madeleine and it's time to turn it on for 27 minutes, He's directed his entire life and his entire months and months of preparatory training for that moment. Yep. And that's how you win seven times in a row. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So we're, we're going back to the timeline. You, you're now a distinguished uh, athlete at Phillips Exeter. You're teed up for college. You have some running dreams now that you can carry to the next level? Not yet. So, so I, um, I didn't know where I wanted to go to college. I heavily I, recruited. He was just getting no, bombarded no. with no, letters, no. text messages. Oh, they didn't have text messages back then. So yeah, um, no. I just uh, I applied to a bunch of colleges. I got into uh, Williams College, and I literally went out there one weekend and looked at the campus and thought, "This looks awesome. It'd be a great place to live." What for city? Four years. Hmm? What city? Williamstown, Massachusetts. Okay. And um, and I had a great experience in college. I um, my you know my uh, Exeter preparation was was top notch and so uh, Williams was fairly easy for me and I enjoyed <laughs> the experience um immensely that, those prep schools man they just they they tee you up don't they absolutely yeah I went to Harvard Westlake in Los Angeles which is the top prep school and I only lasted one year unfortunately I just couldn't hang in seventh grade it was like this is too much work I gotta wait till I get to college I gotta pace myself yeah. but if you're properly prepared wow you just sail through it's amazing yeah. it's amazing what you know that early preparation does anyway so uh I was uh, pre-med, I wanted to be a doctor. I'd had uh, a number of family friends who were physicians. I'd been uh, lucky enough to be invited into the operating theater, scrub up, and and be right there during a four-hour operation when I was 14 years old. Um, I, I, uh, I, one of my other family friends was a plastic surgeon. Uh, and by the way, this is before boob jobs and and lip injections. This was actual reconstructive surgery. Car accident, yeah. plastic yeah. surgery. Yeah. Yeah. They I still thought. exist, I believe. Yeah. I've heard. Yeah. I don't see their ads in airline magazines, but yeah. so uh, you know, so I'd, I'd had a real strong pull toward medicine. Uh, so I was pre med and 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 took a biology track and uh, went down that route for a number of years and enjoyed my experience and had I was track and field and. And uh, cross country and d- excelled there and did very very well in that in that small community. Uh, about the end of my but oh the other thing of note is that I put myself through college so I was I would um, I would paint houses in the summer and I was to this day I'm probably still the best house painter I've ever met. Um, I could monkey up and down a ladder all day long and I could paint a house in a week where it would take another company take another company. Um, you know, a week to scaffold the house and then five guys another week to paint it. So I was able to be very competitive uh, in my bidding and yet make a lot of money in the summer. I remember one, one summer I made more money than some of them my dad made the whole year. 
Is this with a crew or just you? No, just me. Slamming that house on a ladder up and down. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I could do 12 or 14 houses in the summer. (laughs) And it was, um, it was, you know, and and it was great training because I was doing a lot of the outside work. I had my shirt off all day. I was getting tan. I was getting, you know, I was, I was, uh, you know, working the mobility aspect, uh, again, going up and down ladders and stretching, you know, rather than go down and move the ladder over two more feet, I'd, I I just, just lean way out and put my foot on the windowsill on a third story window or whatever. And, you know, I look back on these days now and I think, Jesus, I mean, I'm kind of afraid of heights these days. I don't know what I had those days, but anyway, so I was able to make a, a good living and put myself through college doing that. Uh, so, and then I was also interested in building um, in construction. I did a little bit of uh, of you know contracting in terms of construction uh, remodels and things like that. So when I got to my my dorm uh, <laughs> at Williams, I literally remodeled the inside of my dorm. And it was, a, it was a new dorm, but it had, you know, cement walls covered with vinyl wallpaper. So I built, um, a, bit of, I built a box within it and then put, you know. Uh, like a, a framed in. A framed in thing. two by fours in not, the dorm not, room. Well, two by two. But you but see furring, these kids carrying yeah. their backpack and Mark's got a, a, a power drill just walking across pretty much, campus. Pretty much. Yeah. And a power saw. <laughs> a delivery again. from Home and Depot. I, and so I literally, I did put, I put wall-to-wall paneling. <laughs> Wall-to-wall carpeting, I mean, the floor-to-ceiling paneling, wall-to-wall carpeting, built my own furniture. And I had a great pad. Uh, this is on was, campus? On campus, yeah, <laughs> like in the dorm on campus. So um, I should remember one, one, during one homecoming weekend, this guy comes back and he wants to visit his old dorm room. And he, oh, he, and he knocks on the door and he opens the door and he, and he goes, holy crap, what have you done? I said, this is fabulous. And we started talking. And he said, well, what's your... Um, you know, what's your major and what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm pre-med and I'm thinking about trying to, what it's going to take to get into med school. And he goes, what are you doing that for? You should be, you should be doing this. And uh-huh. I, and I, and I kind of just, I don't know what it was. There was something about what he said and the timing of it and um, where I was in my life. And, and I'd seen, I, I'd seen already um, a tendency in the pre-med candidates to be like, God, these people are really going to be doctors. These are like, you know, kind of, I don't know. I don't. I don't see them. I don't see any bedside manner yeah. in any of these people, and yet they're the ones that are going to get into med school. So I had kind of a, a sour taste in my mouth already from friends that had applied and got, not gotten into med school. And I thought, geez, I just don't want to. I'm going to. I'm going to shift over a little bit, and um, and I think I'll be a. You know, I'll spend a couple of years revisiting this med school thing, and and I pursue my running running career. So by the time I was a senior, I was running very well, and in the summers, I was also in addition to. <laughs> working 40 hours a week or 50 hours a week, I was also uh, training hard and entering road races. So I was entering 10Ks and 20Ks and, you know, sort of the longer the race was, the better suited I was for it. So by the time I got out of college- uh, This is what year? Um, 75. Yeah, so right now is the boom with Frank Shorter- It was amazing. Kicking it off with so the gold medal in 72. 72, he won, he won the gold medal. 75, Bill Rogers wins Boston uh, in 209.55. 76. In hot weather. Shorter, uh, you know, gets a silver um, in uh, Montreal. And then Alberto Salazar comes on the scene in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. And Alberto is a teen, a high school phenom who is now, uh, you know, winning the Falmouth Road Race, which is the biggest road race in the country. Uh, and so there's this, it's, it becomes the heyday of running. And it's mm-hmm. really now, um, and again, it, it was sort of this tipping point where, the interest in jogging had started with Ken Cooper in 68. So more and more people were jogging. Uh, the interest in distance running and heart health and cardiac health and doing cardio training 
was kind of coming to uh, a head in the general population while we were also seeing great runners with Steve Prefontaine, with Frank Shorter, with Bill Rogers. Uh, and, and so running was like really, really big in the late 70s and early 80s. So I just thought, well, I'll take a couple of years. I'll train uh, for the 1980 Olympic trials and try and qualify for the marathon and the Olympic trials. And that'll be my, my, my goal in running. Uh, and I'll put off medical school and reevaluate that Uh-oh. later on. <laughs> and see when people put off the stuff like that. Yeah. It's like when your kid says, yeah, I'm going to put off college for a year. And yeah. you're like, uh, no, you're not. Cause yeah. the, the, the things unwind easily. Easily. Yeah. Uh, I should note to the listeners that you're, you're talking about, this is so long ago in the seventies and you're saying you're doing pretty well in these races and the way that the, the running situation was back then to now is you're most likely vastly superior to today's winner of the little race and the 10K in your community and wherever you are. The, the, the times were so much faster in your day than they are today. It's one of the rare um, examples in sports where the, the, quali- Regression. <laughs> the quality of the field has regressed. Yeah. Um, too many grains and sugars in the diet. Too. I don't know. But I mean, you know, like you look at the Los Angeles Marathon today and you look at um, the top finishers. If you, <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean to sound disparaging to anybody, but in the 70s, if you couldn't break three hours for a marathon, you were a jogger. Not a runner. Not a, you were not a runner, you were a jogger. And it was a legitimate kind of thing. If you couldn't run yeah. seven minute miles for, you know, for 26 miles, you were a jogger. Um, and- today, if you run three hours in the Los Angeles Marathon out of the 28,000 people who start, you'll be in the top 100. It's unbelievable to me. And by the way, of the top 100, the first 15 will be African. They'll they'll probably be East African. Uh, So it's it's crazy. I mean, the times that we ran, I I ran 228.38 in one of the races up in Oregon. I'll never forget it. It was like, because it was a qualifying time for, for the Olympic trials. Actually, it might have been 221.38. Anyway, um, you know, and, and again, in any major race today, that would get fourth or <laughs> yeah, seventh. Something, something yeah. like that. Well, in, in New York City Marathon, yeah. which is the huge participation, 50,000, yeah. you look at the ranking of the American finishers, yeah. and you would be the fourth American, fourth American. or whatever yeah. Yeah. instead of— Anyway, yeah. this was a small race up in Oregon. A small Six, race in Oregon. 670 people entered it, and, and the 221.38 that I ran finished, I think it was 48th place. <laughs> and it's it was mind-blowing. And, and yeah. there were only like three— um, foreigners in front of me, yeah. you know, Dick Quacks from New Zealand, right. and I forget some one of the Japanese guys. It's crazy how how great running used to be. So anyway, so um, we're getting sidetracked on on the minutia. That's the all right. Here. You're you're going to go for this Olympic dream, and that took you to the West Coast. Was that specifically to train in a new yeah, environment? Yeah. So but by then, I so I got out of Williams. Uh, I was living in Williamstown. I was painting houses. I was doing a little bit of construction. Um, I was making a good living, like a, like like I was making close to a hundred thousand dollars a year in those you're days. You're kidding? No, it that's, was yeah. well, today. That's double, <laughs> right? Yeah. So you're some college kid making yeah. a, a couple couple hundred large, yeah. and I had painting I had, houses. By then, I had a couple of people working for me too. But it was still a yeah. Nice you thing. did. You had an accountant. You yeah, had a financial it a, planner. It, were, it was a nice business, and I was not compelled to to do anything other than that. I was not compelled to go to med school. I was I was. Mm. You know, and I and by the way, this was the back in the days of um, amateur sports, right? You couldn't qualify for the Olympics 
if you'd received any sort of compensation for a raise. So there, you know, I would, tr- I would have to pay my own expenses. Sometimes I get my, my expenses paid to go to races. There was that allowed. But you couldn't get prize money. You couldn't accept, you know, you could, there'd be an awards table. You, this goes back before you, but there'd be an awards table and you go over the awards. And if you finish first, you get first choice of all these things that were on the Grab awards bag. table. Grab bag. Pair of shoes. Shoelaces. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. it was crazy. But it was great times. It was fun times. And I traveled around the world and I raced with a lot of cool people. And this is doing marathons mostly? Marathons, or, almost yeah. all marathons, yeah. Oh. The occasional uh, 20 miler or even 20K. But the longer the race, the better it was for me. I mean, I do 10Ks if it was local, but to, to go to a different country or to go across the country, would for it would only be for a marathon. So I got, um, but anyway, I was doing this in, in New England. I was in Williamstown. And Williamstown is in the Berkshires, and um, it's cold in the wintertime. It's like one of the coldest parts of the country, and it can be, you know, five below to get up to a high of 20 during the daytime. Sometimes I'll get up into the 40s, but, you know, for the most part, uh, throughout the winter, here I am putting on 10 pounds of clothing to go out and run in, in really, really cold temperatures, 10, 10 degrees, 15 degrees, um, sometimes wind, and it was just annoying it was like it was it was certainly good for for um my my um attitude and my resilience toughness yeah. toughness but um you know I'm, but it's, by the same token i'm not sure what it was doing in terms of my um specific training i went to miami one one weekend and i entered the orange bowl marathon and finished second in that race with like uh-huh. no acclamation uh-huh. um uh just you know, it was a hot day, um, but I was a good heat runner. I wasn't um, negatively impacted by the heat as much as everyone else was. I mean, everyone's sort of negatively impacted sure. by the heat, but not me, not so much. So anyway, I realized that I liked warmer weather, I, uh, and um, I wanted to be comfortable. And then I had a friend who'd gone to Williams, one of my good friends at Williams, who'd moved out to San Francisco. I went out to visit him one weekend, and when I was out there, I met some of the people in the West Valley Track Club. Well, West Valley Track Club was the top-running club uh, in the country at the time. So I moved to the West Coast. This is 1978 now. Joined the West Valley Track Club. Um, quickly shifted over to the Aggie Running Club, which became the, like the renegade track club in the country. Um, These it guys was, were crazy. They were, they were really, like partiers. And yes. Just, uh, you know, freewheeling. No, it was amazing how, you know, you think of what you do as an endurance athlete and you have to be, you know, sort of keep everything in line and not get too crazy, but we would have the most outrageous parties. We had a van full of beer and sometimes weed that we would bring to races. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we had a cheer, the faster we run, the sooner the fun. What um, was the thing we, they did with the centipede? Oh, like they, they had like a costume thing or something. So, um, when, so Gore-Tex, when Gore-Tex was first invented, Gore-Tex started to sponsor the running community. And they came, uh, the, the sort of the Aggies came up with this uh, idea with, with Gore-Tex uh, to put together a, um, a team event where 10 people would be linked with sort of this uh, Gore-Tex um, um, parka, for lack of a better, a better term, that you put over your head and it would go around your neck, but there'd be an, about a foot between you and the person in front of you, maybe two feet, and then another foot, and it would be, have to be 10 people long. So it'd be this 10-person long link, uh, and then you'd race as a team that way. So clearly, you were only as fast as your slowest person. Oh. 
And you're racing against other 10-person centipedes, yeah. like a division. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And, and it started at the Beta Breakers in the, again, in the late 70s. And it was, within a few short years, there, became, there was 200 teams that would race in the centipede division. Yeah. That's 2,000 runners yeah. just yeah. stuck together. Yeah. Yeah. Some of I, them, I forget <laughs> whether it's six runners or 10. I think it was, I think yeah, it was, it was 10. 10. Yeah, it was 10. Centipede, yeah. Yep. And, um, uh, and so we would, you know, we, our team would typically take that. Because you're, you, even with your stuck together, you guys are, I mean, it's a very competitive thing. It was a big deal. Oh, we would you be- you guys the, are running like yeah. five minute miles or something no, crazy. We would, we, no, for instance, we would beat the first woman. <laughs> and the first yeah. woman in those days was, you oh, know, yeah. would be like a Mickey yeah. Gorman or a, yeah. or a Hanson. Yeah. You know, be a, so um, it was like serious business. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was one of the crazy, you know, little events that we participated in. But we had 10 guys qualify for the Olympic trials. In, on in the 19, team? On the team, yeah, wow. in 1980. Wow. So it was a, a pretty- um, uh, a great team. And then, you know, we, one of our illustrious early founders, Angel Martinez, went on to become president of Reebok uh, and then, um, you know, went on to uh, Rockport Shoes, a number of other things, very successful businessman. Uh, and, you know, he's a guy, who st- he was a third hire at Reebok, started, was selling shoes out of a van. Um, so we had some, and then Peanut Harms, who was the sort of manager of the team, was the coach of one of the African teams for one Olympic Games. And yeah, we had, a, it was great, Great times. It was that. That was real uh, camaraderie because we weren't doing it for the money. You know, we were doing it because we were trying to, um, you know, trying to. I guess for the we were doing it for the for the accolades. I want to tell you about WildHealth.com. They're an online provider of comprehensive precision medicine and health consultation services. They offer DNA analysis, custom lab panels, extensive medical intake form with family history and lifestyle preferences, and regular online visits with a board-certified precision medicine physician and a health coach whom you can message anytime through their convenient app. Wild Health evaluates your data to determine what you need for nutrition, exercise, sleep, and supplements, and you can experiment, consult, and retest to get everything dialed in. You'll get a cutting-edge epigenetic test of DNA methylation to calculate your all-important biological age and have fun lowering your age over time instead of following the mainstream path to accelerated aging. It's time to strive for awesome instead of just normal. Did you realize that only 6.8% of Americans are deemed metabolically healthy and only 2% are declared optimal? That's disgraceful, but you can turn things around quickly. Please visit wildhealth.com and you will see that this is the absolute gold standard of personalized medicine and it's available to you right now. Telemedicine available anywhere in the USA. Wild Health is generously extending BRAD podcast listeners 20% off the cost of membership. Just visit wildhealth.com slash Brad or use the code Brad20 at checkout to get 20% off and start taking control of your health today at wildhealth.com slash Brad. Hey, I want to tell you about Schwank Grills. This is a revolutionary 
portable gas infrared grill that uses the exact same heating technology as the world's best steakhouses. You heat up to 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit to grill the juiciest steak you've ever tasted in as little as three minutes. Can you believe it? That's right. You do not have to go to those crowded, noisy, super overpriced steakhouses anymore when you have the same technology in your backyard. And the Schwank portable infrared grill is not just for steak. You can make chicken wings hamburgers, seafood, lobster, vegetables. I make salmon in three minutes. They even have a pizza stone accessory. I want you to visit their very informative and mouth-watering website at schwankgrills.com. That's S-C-H-W-A-N-K. Everything you cook, faster, juicier. The speed is so important, so convenient. Uh, There's a drip tray on the bottom, so you let the juices drip down. I love the bison burger, the venison burgers. That's my game. And then you can add a mixture of butter, spices, whatever you want, into the tray. Pour it back onto your meat or your salmon for a huge improvement in flavor. Are you getting hungry? I am. <laughs> Let's go to schwankgrills.com, S-C-H-W-A-N-K, grills.com, and up your home cooking game. This is a one-of-a-kind grill. I have a great discount code for you, of course. It's BRAD150 to save $150 off your purchase of a Schwank grill. If you're training extremely hard at the same time and have this intense competitive drive, I guess the overpowering goal is to... to get to this uh, Olympic marathon trial starting line. Yep. And so at some point coming up to the 1980 trials, yeah, yeah. Jimmy, Jimmy Carter got on TV, gave some bad news to athletes in this country. Yeah, said we were going to boycott the games. Um, and that was devastating for a lot of people. I have to tell you, though, that by then, while I had qualified, I'd met sort of my life goal to qualify for the Olympic trials. Uh, that's the point at which I had... Um, so trashed my body from training mm. and had become so inflamed from the diet and from all the other, um, you know, uh, aspects of my life that were um, centered around, around this singular goal that I, my, my training had dropped from 110 miles a week and 120 sometimes to, you know, 40 miles a week. I just couldn't, I literally couldn't walk for an hour in the morning because of the arthritis in my feet um, I had severe tendonitis in my hip uh, that, uh, in, you know, hip flexor issue that w- would not resolve. And so I literally um, elected just not, I didn't even compete in the Olympic trials. I just couldn't, I couldn't tow the starting line of that race. So you're a young guy still. What are you, 20, 26 years old in, in the Olympic trials date? Uh, yeah, Something? 27, yeah. And so you, you, you gave it all you had for, what, three or four or five years after college? Yep, and then just ground to basically ground to a halt. Well, I wasn't going to yeah. let. I was not going to let that. Um, you know that that one injury keep me from pursuing the the um, endorphin rush that I'd been chasing every day. And this is one of the things that you start to realize as an endurance athlete is that is that there's more to this than just your willingness to go out and and hammer it hard every day. There is a real physiological addiction that happens. Uh, to a lot of us who are in this in this uh, endurance realm, and you create endorphins, natural painkillers, and natural opiates that uh, attach to receptor sites and give you pleasure. And when people talk about the runner's high, it's a real thing. Uh, and so you you wind up chasing that high um, for for better or for worse on a daily basis. So here I am, 
I've, I've shut down the running. I can't do the running anymore. I pick up a bike and I start riding a bike because I need some outlet for my uh, desire to put myself through some amount of discomfort every day. And I meet this guy, Ian Jackson, who was a big wave rider in Hawaii and who'd done a bunch of ultra marathons and was now doing this big race in Hawaii called the Ironman. And hey, Mark, you should do the Ironman with me. And I'm like, you are crazy. There's no freaking way I'm doing that. That's ridiculous. How could any, why would anybody choose? Next thing you know, I'm training with Ian. And the uh, Bay Area? It's the Bay yeah. Area. Yep. This is in Palo Alto, Menlo Park, Woodside, Portola Valley. Great training, great training grounds. Uh, and he says, and, you know, so I enter the race and I go in um, February of 81 was the first mm-hmm. one that I entered. And it was the first one on the big island on Kona. Um, you know, I meet the likes of Bob Babbitt and a bunch of the guys that we know now to be the sort of the, the, the old guard, the old salt of, of the race. Uh, John Howard shows up uh, hoping to convert his cycling fame into another uh, sport. Um, but I'd never done a triathlon when I showed up at the line of... Uh, never done any triathlon? No. Not no. the no. Splash and Dash Palo Alto YMCA? No. Probably didn't have it. No. So... Um, <laughs> I didn't know what I was getting into. I, I had not been a swimmer. In fact, uh, as you know, to this day, I'm probably the worst, one of the worst swimmers that ever entered the sport of triathlon. But I, you know, slogged my way through the yardage in the pool and, and got myself the starting line. And um, I finished 24th in that first event. And I, at the end of it, I thought, you know, this is, um, I, I did it. And I'd like to come back and see if I can do better. So for the next year um i did a couple of other triathlons and uh i you know i i I learned a little bit more about swimming and and i was able to um you know take some take some time off my swim but i wound up um anyway i went over to went over to cone and finished fourth Uh, but the story is i came out of the water in 95th uh rode my way up to 15th ran my way up to third place so it was, uh, I was, it was Scott Tinley, Dave Scott, and me, and then Jeff Tinley was behind me. But in those days, they wanted you to drink so much fluid. Like I drank probably 30 bottles of fluid because they were afraid you were going to die from yeah. – from, uh, they, they, they weighed you to make sure – They weighed you – in 81, they weighed you to um, make sure you hadn't lost a certain percent of your body weight. And if you had, they pulled you out of the race. Because they were really – they were still afraid people were going to die doing this event. So um, anyway, I would, I'd run my way up into third, but then I drank so much liquid that I had to pull over to the side of the road and piss and piss and piss. And I mean, I, I, like, I took like a four-minute piss. Oh. To, and, and, that, and, that, and so Jeff, Jeff Tinley went by me and I wound up in fourth place. His catheter was shaking with all this. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't want to stop. He had no, I mean, no, that, would, that started this, all of the talk about how do you, you know, how do you pee while you're on the bike and, and is it possible to pee while you're running? And I just think it's not, but. I guess some people have it's figured possible. that out. It's some, possible. Some people have yeah. figured that out. It goes into your bike shoes, yeah. I will report. Yeah. It goes right down your leg into your bike shoes. Yeah. It's not good. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so that was that was my um, you know, my early times in triathlon. Um, I got back from the race. I was sort of uh, involved in a in a relationship at the time that was going well. Uh, my friend who I'd gone out to California to, to, to visit and, and now had become a potential partner of mine in a business. And so I just sort of 
said, you know, I'll, I'll retire from this endurance competition thing. That'll be it. And I'll just start really grinding away on the, on the entrepreneurial side. Yeah, you're, you're not leaving any money on the table, no. unfortunately, because yeah. today you'd probably, you, you probably would have got more swim lessons and had a longer career. Still, st- yeah. still wouldn't be leaving much on the table. <laughs> the way triathlon has gone, right? Well, if you're if you're a painter that was you know in yeah. in the big bucks while still in college, you're, you're you got that entrepreneurial yeah. light bulb going all the time. Yeah, so I basically retired first uh, from competition in in '82. Um, I wrote the Runners World Triathlon Training Book with uh, Ray Hostler, and we had a great time with that. Uh, Runners World published the book, and it did very well. But I went on to um, you know, started a much larger painting company called Marathon Painters. Um, had a frozen yogurt shop in Palo Alto, <laughs> did very well in the early days of frozen yogurt. Built a restaurant in San Jose next to Apple Computer. Um, but after a few years, the, um, oh, by the way, what you should know is that in building the restaurant, uh, we borrowed, my partner and I borrowed money at uh, 17 and three quarters percent interest, which was the best rate that you could get in 1983. And not, need, not needless to say, but we went out of business. Uh, you know, it, the restaurant failed. And so that's when I moved to, um, I just, you know, had had enough of the, the Bay Area and uh, moved to LA to get into uh, sports broadcasting. Out of nowhere? Or you just no, it's dabbled just, or something? I, no, I just, uh, I'd, I'd done a little bit of modeling. I'd done some, um, a little bit of acting classes and things like that. And I, just decided I wanted to change, and I was interested in commentating. And so I came to L.A. to become a sports broadcaster and found an agent. Uh, the agent basically sent me out on to, to acting classes and to, um, you know, groundlings and a bunch of different training, training things. And uh, the next thing you know, I'm going out on auditions for roles in, you know, television and commercials and is your game for all this? Well, I guess. I mean, if that I mean, was what was going to get me to my goal. Yeah. So, um, you know, I got I got into that acting scene for about two years. But then I just thought to myself, this is not what I came here to be. I didn't care. I, I don't want to be somebody else. I want to be myself. <laughs> you know, and at the time, um, let's see, that's about the time that I met you and Scott Zagarino and I, so you, you need to know that all this time, I'm still training. I'm still riding my bike. I'm still- Your uh, personal training, uh, you're, you're doing that too, I'm right? doing personal acting. training while I'm acting. Yeah. So I'm in LA and I'm doing personal training, um, making, actually making a lot of money as a personal trainer too. Uh, sort of on the strength of my Ironman, you know, fourth place Ironman finish, whatever. I mean, it was just enough. There were enough people that wanted to train for that, that race that- we're willing to pay a lot of money for me to go on bike rides with them and yeah. go on, on runs with it's, them. It's not whatever in this town because, you know, 78% of the trainers are, are posing as someone they're not. And yeah. then there's a real athlete who's actually a trainer. You're going to yeah. rise to the top quickly. Yeah. So that was fun. And I made a lot of money doing that. And, uh, but it was, it was very time consuming. And, and then that sort of, um, because I was still involved in triathlon uh, coaching people and I had, this experience writing a book, and I was sort of known in the in in the triathlon world. I was asked to participate in a committee that would write the anti doping rules for the sport of triathlon because mm-hmm. there, there were no drug testing rules for triathlon at the time. So I got I got um, I got put on that committee and was uh, I was asked to to be the one to go present it to the board of directors in St. Louis uh, at a board meeting. 
um, they adopted the rules. And three weeks later, I get a call. Would you like to be the executive director of the Triathlon Federation? Huh. I guess you had a good presentation. I guess there. I did. I guess I did. So uh, this was interesting. So uh, I moved to um, Colorado, to Colorado Springs, with my girlfriend at the time, who was Carrie. With some negotiation with involved, some negotiation. I understand. Yeah, she was like... Does Carrie like warm weather too, as a matter of fact? She likes it more than I do. Hey, Carrie, I got a great opportunity. Yeah. How about Colorado Springs? Yeah, how about you move there with me? And she's like, how about we get married? So anyway... Donde me ani... J-Lo song, Donde me ani... Where's the ring? She oh, sang yeah. it to A-Rod. Yeah. yeah. So we moved to Colorado, and I took on the, the um, executive directorship of the... Federation. Of course, three weeks later, I get a call from ESPN. Would you like to be the uh, uh, color announcer for triathlon? This uh, dream come true. We're, we're covering, we're covering all these uh, Bud Light triathlon events. And you're going there anyway as the executive director yeah, to see yeah. how the sport's doing. So, uh, so my my dream did sort of come true. I got to do a bunch of these ESPN events, and it was great. But uh, you uh, got many compliments about your hair. I remember from the broadcast. And like you'd come back into the cycling pack and, you know, you're on TV. Everyone watches the race. All triathletes watch the race. And yeah. they, everyone loved your hair, man. Really? Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. McNaughton, that's the first thing he'd say to you every time he saw uh, you. Oh, yeah. yeah. Nice hair. Nice it's hair. perfect. Nice Is your hair, hair always perfect? Nice yeah. hair, coach. Yeah. So, um, and just backtracking a little bit, because before I took on that position, I had been the coach of the Pioneer Triathlon team, which was the team that you were on. And this was a team of pros that uh, Zag, our, our wheeling, dealing uh, mastermind, put together. And yes. so we all wore the same clothes. It was an idea that had never been presented in this individual sport. Right. Yeah. yeah, so we were wearing the team. And then guess what? We had a coach yeah. uh, supplied and a massage therapist. It was a great idea. Yeah, it was yeah. a great idea. We had a lot of fun doing that. So there was that, that almost a year, I think, of doing that where we, um, you know, we traveled around. Uh, we went, did, were you on the Japan trip? No. Okay. So we, we took the we took the team to Japan. Um, we did um, Saint uh, Croix. Saint Croix was awesome. Roxanne. I'll never forget oh, yeah. that. <laughs> and uh, we had a we had a great uh, just a, a great year of just traveling around and good camaraderie and um, and it was you know um, some of the, some of the best memories of of the sport of triathlon. But anyway, back to. Well, what was also important about that coach athlete role for, for me and the other athletes anyway, was you were this ancient old guy yep. in our perspective, you were yep. 38 or something yep. and you know, still training like you report, working out with your clients, uh, not really committed to it or putting in the proper workouts that you should if you had ambitions to be whatever champion. But you jump into our workouts that you were part coaching and then just part riding along and we'd notice this old guy is keeping up with us. Yeah. And it was, you know, deep down, we're all super competitive and, and you know, want to want to measure our, uh, our, our, our success and our place in the pack. And it was, it was a tiny bit frustrating. Like, what the F are you doing? Because I know you're working all day making money and we're sleeping and training and you're hanging with us as old man guy. Yeah. And that was, I think, an awakening to some of the, the future principles where we realized that you didn't have to pound your brains out every single day, you could still maintain a high level of fitness. Didn't you go to the world championships in the, in the duathlon? 
One yeah, of those I years? think I, I mean, I was 38 and I was just, it was kind of a, by then I was just a hobby runner. I was probably doing 10 miles a week of running and just a hobby, yeah? you know, 50 miles a week of cycling, but I finished 11th overall. I think it was, you know, <laughs> won my age group by a lot. And, uh, you know, I think I ran 34.50 for the 10K and had a great ride and then ran 35.10 for the second 10K or something like that. It was a, it was a good showing, if I do say so myself. And, but it was based on, uh, like we talk about in the Primal Blueprint, it's based on a strong aerobic base that that arose from very low-level activity, not training in the black hole every single day. And the difference was you guys were just inclined to half-wheel each other every single ride. You know, Half-wheel means? It means I'm not going to let you get ahead of me. So I'm going to be a half wheel ahead of even you. Even if we're sitting together chatting even, even side by si- side. Even if we're sitting together side by side, exactly. So uh, there's always that competition. And of course, in Southern California, whether you, well, not even Southern California, if you were in Boulder, if you were in San Diego, and in, in, in you know, there was always the Tuesday ride, the Wednesday run, the Thursday, all of these different things. And, and they were all competitive. They were always competitive. So it was, it's tough to like take that time off and just, not participate in those because they're so enticing to get in with a crowd and go out and have a group ride or a group run. Yeah, I guess you know the endorphins are coming. Yeah. And then you're also selecting this population that's highly driven and highly motivated. You told um, Jason Wachab on the Mind Body Green podcast that you you identified this sociopathic mindset mm-hmm. when you were an endurance athlete, that you you had this compulsion to suffer and to, and to, and to just push and explain that. Is that, a, is that a necessary quality or is that something that if you had in hindsight, you would have done the whole thing differently and well, had I mean, more I, alcohol and weed and, and less no, mileage? No, no, no. I mean, no, you, you have to have that. That's, again, it's the, uh, it's, it's why a lot of athletes are assholes. I mean, it's, you, have, <laughs> you have to have that single-mindedness of purpose. You have to be, uh, you know, you have to have an ego uh, strong enough to, to, to believe in yourself at, at all costs sometimes. Uh, you know, there are a lot of aspects of being an elite athlete that, that make you somewhat sociopathic. And if you try to be, um, you know, the, the um, well-rounded person, the good business person, the family man, the, you know, the community participant, and a world-class athlete, I just don't think there's enough bandwidth to do all that. So the the world-class athlete, the elite athlete, has to kind of make a lot of sacrifices in other areas of life to be able to, to stay on that thin, thin, thin knife edge that, that has that person be just a, a, a thousandth of a second ahead of the next guy who's, who wants to knock you off. What about for a business leader and building building the enterprise? Do you feel like some of those attributes are absolutely necessary, or is it a different venue because it's not so calibrated toward your your physical peak performance? Uh, yeah, I think it's a different venue. I used to think they were same the same, and I used to think that I mean there are certainly certain some attributes of um, work ethic and um, belief in oneself that cross over, but I think. Um, a truly successful business is a team sport, not an individual sport. A truly successful business, like like if I'm if I'm building a team in sports, and um, and I'm trying to compete with other people, I don't want people who are better than than I am to be on my team. But 
if I'm putting together a business, I want, I want to find the best possible people. Um, you know, I, I love this saying that if you're, if you're the smartest guy in the room, you're in the wrong room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, my business success has only come from hiring exceptional people uh, who, you know, who are driven, who, who understand the philosophy, who buy into it, who are, um, have a good work ethic, uh, and who are smarter than me, smarter than I, in, uh, in these particular areas for which I hired them. Well, what I've learned also from you and being, being on, the, on the business journey together is that you, you have that ability to be an intense competitor and tough and, and direct and, and demanding and all those things. But then you can also, you're adhering to this motto of living awesome, where the stuff at some point rolls off your back and you're able to enjoy your life. And I have my, we're going to get into some of these, my, my, my top secret notes that no one's ever seen of uh, Sisson's life-changing insights for me. Mm-hmm. And one of them was, um, this, is, this is the punchline, hey man, it's just a fucking book. Yeah. And I took away, went away from that lunch at Marmalade with you know, an, an epiphany that you, we, can, we can get so deep into this and try so hard and be so competitive and driven and all these things that it can, it has the ability to throw you off and ha- hamper your enjoyment, even if you are successful. And we see the celebrities and the athletes that have train wreck lives because they haven't figured out that, you know, they got to get over themselves, even though yep. they're the number one person. And um, you've always had a pretty good balance there or, or presented a pretty good balance. And I, I know you're pretty well, but I know like in, in recent times, it's been, it's been battleground and it's been, it's been tough uh, just to, to keep your life balanced and uh, oh, yeah, no, positive had, attitude. No, I've had one of the toughest years ever um, in business and with the, with the failure of uh, the Primal Kitchen restaurants. It's been devastating. It's been, you know, um, a huge hit. Um, but, you know, you have to, I mean, I take everything on balance and I've got a food company that's one of the fastest growing companies in the country right now. And so on balance, everything's awesome, right? Well, I mean, to that point, you're, you have this entrepreneurial mindset starting at age 12, where I, w- I was going to interrupt you, but I try not to, where, where you said you wanted to do things without your parents' approval and all that. And I'm, I'm envisioning like you're buying another lawnmower instead of, you know, going like a regular kid to the, to the fair and buying some cotton candy. Yeah. Yeah. So um, is this sort of a innate genetic attribute that you just, you're just wired this way and, and you can take these incredible risks and, and experience these highs and lows that your next door neighbor who's, uh, you know, had, had a stable, steady professional career would never dream of throwing money at a, at a restaurant whim, nor a kitchen startup. Yeah. Is it genetic? Is it learned? Um, Maybe a little bit of both. I think it starts with genetics, but I think you know, growing up again in a, in a small town in Maine where I, we didn't have much money, um, nobody did in in that town. Um, there was a strong work ethic, so I wasn't the only twelve year old kid working in the summer. Every one of my friends, it's like some of them went out and they had their own lobster boats and would pull <laughs> traps at twelve and thirteen years old. Wow, yeah, I mean it was it was crazy, um, but that's what that's literally what you did. Uh, so. Um, but having said that, I don't think, I mean, I think I'm as risk, as risk averse as, as anybody. I, I like to think of myself as fairly risk averse, but I take count. Is that why you had three monitors going in your, in your office when I came visit you oh, 15 years ago? What, what the F is this, Mark? Why do you need so many computers? I'd never seen a day traders <laughs> platform there. Yeah. 
So no, that, really? You're, you're not messing with me? No, I'm not messing <laughs> with you. I'm fairly risk averse, which is why the day trading thing didn't last that long. I, I thought I had an angle and, um, and I probably did, but I wasn't willing to stare at a, at a level two screen for eight hours a day just to find three times during the day when, there was, when it was appropriate to, to enter or exit the market. Um, no, I mean, it's, it's, I take calculated risks, um, but, there's, and there's, and there, but there's still risks. I mean, I'm willing to take a risk. That's what an entrepreneur does. An entrepreneur is willing to take risk, will, willing to risk capital or time uh, in order to uh, achieve what that person thinks is, um, you know, an outcome, a product, a service, or something that will benefit uh, the marketplace and con- contribute to the economy in, in a way that is meaningful. So I don't think I'm, 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 I have this particular, you know, risky gene. I'm, in fact, probably quite the opposite. But in business, you just sort of look at the data and you say, on balance, this something. This is something that looks like a good idea. I'm willing to invest time or money or whatever uh, in it, and you know, prove the model and see if it works. And if it does, great. I'll scale it. If it doesn't, I'll move on to the next thing. Well, the other another on the list of life changing insights is invest in yourself. Yep. And that one um, seems to make so much sense because you have you can touch and feel this stuff that you're doing. Whereas if you buy Apple stock right now, some people think it's going to grow and continue to, but you, you can't touch any of that. Uh, but it seems like that's been your pattern is you've always invested and reinvested in stuff that you not only believed in, or you, you talk about your primal kitchen products, you make products that you want to consume yourself that you feel like you need for your salads. Yep. And that seems to have been um, by and large, pretty successful. Yeah. It's been very successful su- mindset. It's a successful mindset. Yeah. No, I, I'm uh I'm absolutely one who, you know, um, I follow my passion. I follow, you know, uh, whatever I'm interested in at the time. Um, but I'm always, I think this, this idea to invest in yourself is one in which if you just look at um, simple things like investing in an education, uh, I would tell young people today, if you don't think that you want know what you want to do, you know, and you want to... You know, go to a liberal arts college and and take poli sci. You know, take a poli sci major and spend one hundred twenty thousand of your parents' dollars for for what? You have no idea what that's going to be. That's fine. You could do that, but if you don't have the money, you know, go to a trade school. Learn 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 a trade. I mean, I've got. Um, I, I see now that um, a builder can make one hundred thousand dollars, one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, like a carpenter. Right? Um, they can't find anybody to do it because. Nobody's willing to, to to undertake physical labor anymore. Really, is a yeah. shortage of there's uh, a shortage of skilled labor, skilled laborers in the building industry. Uh, you know, welders up in the in the oil rigs. I mean, there's lots of trades that you can learn. So you can by I mean, my point there is by investing you know five thousand dollars in learning how to weld, you can create a hundred and fifty thousand dollar job for yourself. So that's one example. But the but what I like to you know what I like to look at is. Every business I've ever had, I, I did it with my own savings. I didn't raise money from other people. I could have, and that's a legitimate way of doing it. But for the most part, I invested in myself. I believed in myself enough to start a business and to, um, to believe in it and grow it and, and uh, hire the right kind of people and make the investments that I was willing to forego 
um, profit, shall we say, from one year to the next and reinvest the profit to, to grow the business at a higher rate than, than, say, taking profits at the end of every year and investing in the stock market where I would cross my fingers and hope that I made 6% or 7% a year. I mean, so, that's, that's a risky strategy because some, most experts would say, hey, take some of this money off the table and put right. it into uh, you know, income fund, fund or something. Yeah. Yeah, well, so that's maybe where I'm, I'm a little bit more um, or less risk-averse, is I've always felt like the stock market is a fool's game. And, you know, you're not investing in the economy when you invest in the stock market. You're buying a piece of paper that represents fractional ownership of the company, and you're buying it from somebody else who has nothing to do with the company. So the money that you spend to buy the stock does not go to the company unless it's an IPO. It's, you're just trading pieces of paper. And you're just hoping you can sell it to somebody else what we call a greater fool at a higher level in a year or two or three. Uh, that's not participating in the economy the way I like to. So I like to grow businesses. I like, I'm an angel investor. So money that I invest in a startup company, that money gets used to hire people and to do R and D and to rent buildings and to build widgets and things like that. It's, it's actually participating in, in the company. And in the hey, company. what's a widget? <laughs> it's a fictional product. It yeah. doesn't matter what movie. Yeah. Uh, uh, Life of Brian, I don't know. Rodney Dangerfield, okay. back to school. Okay. Yeah, yeah. well, you said it with a British accent. So I that was, was the, the teacher, Python. the professor. Oh, oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, so um, we're back to investing in yourself. Is that what yeah. you're yeah. yeah, so After movie references, yeah. we're back. Yeah. Uh, the, the idea that um, you should, and again, this is, this is advice from an old guy who's, you know, I've had times when I've had a fair amount of money, and I've had times when I had, didn't have a pot to piss in. You know, I was basically living in a, in a, in a bedroom that I rented from a, an old lady in, in um, Santa Monica when I met my wife. I literally didn't have a pot to piss in. I was making some money and, you know, doing some training stuff or whatever, but I didn't have anything saved and I didn't, it, it was living hand to mouth. But I knew um, that at any point in time, if I stuck to my guns and was reasonably successful, that a couple of successful years would make up for an entire 30 or 40 years of not making any money to speak of. Now, let's be, let, let me be clear on that. When I say not making any money, yes, you make enough to live on, right? You make enough to pay the rent wherever you're living. You make enough to buy some food. You make enough to close yourself, to, to have a car, whatever. You make enough to do that. But whether you save money or not, I just, I'm not, I'm not buying that American dream thing for somebody who's mm-hmm. an entrepreneur. I think if you reinvest in yourself, um, you, can, you can go decades without having a success. And as long as you don't owe money, as long as you're not in debt to the mob, you know, as long as you don't owe money, and, you ha- and as long as, by the way, as long as you enjoy your life, as mm-hmm. long as you live your life in the moment, have friends, if you have a family, have family, if you have kids, enjoy the kids, as long as you are able to um, to live your life, then it really doesn't matter whether you save a thousand bucks a month or a hundred bucks a month or whatever. You're probably going to spend the money on something, uh, even if you save it. Even yeah. if you save it, you're going to go pop. We, you're going to blow 24 months later on a vacation, yeah. whatever. And again, that's that's all good. But but to but the idea here is that um, as long as you keep hammering away and as long as you keep you know um, listening to the 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 universe and being open to opportunities to come your way and identifying what it is that, that you're here to do. Um, it only takes a couple of really good years to make up for all the time that you didn't, you know, that you didn't save here and save there. That's my philosophy anyway. 
that's that's number three on your list. You yeah. hit it, which which was um, all you need is one home run. Yeah. And for anyone who's uh, in the you know self employment or the, the entrepreneurial journey, that can that can that can serve to motivate you in the background and also calm you. It's crazy. I mean, I I um, you know my first success came when I was probably 47 or 48 years old. You know, my first, you know, I would say the first, you know, the first year I've made a million bucks, right? That was, that was then. And that sort of, that was my metric for, um, okay, you're, you know, now you're, now you're playing, you know? Oh, for most people, it's six figures. We hear that as a common yeah, yeah. cultural term. So you're, you're at seven. That, whatever. I mean, it's whatever, whatever the number is for you. That's what it is in Malibu. It's yeah. just, they just factor in. It says, yeah. welcome to Malibu. And it yeah. says population 23,000, but then someone wrote another zero because they put another zero on everything. Yeah. yeah. Actually, the population is 13,000. But... It says 130 on the sign. Yeah. Some, some, some <laughs> jokester put a zero. Uh, so that's getting us back to the timeline. Yeah. So um, you were here, you had your broadcasting ambitions, and then you transitioned into the, uh, the executive director position mm-hmm. at USA Triathlon. That was a fixed time frame of three years. dealing with the snow. Three years? Yeah. I thought it was like one. No, well, it's two and a half, two and a half years. You live yeah. three bloody years in Colorado. Yeah. Wow, Carrie, props, if you're listening, <laughs> Carrie hung in there. Yeah. I mean, not everybody would. People would bail at two years and go back to LA. Yeah. yeah. Have a car sent to take her to Nobu by her oh, you know, next date. Oh, she almost did that a couple of times. Yeah, by the way. for yeah. sure, man. Yeah. Um, so you came back. Yep. And uh, were you, again, uh, penniless with just a pot to piss in, not much more? Because I know they don't pay highly at no, the didn't. executive director position. No. So at the time, then my friend, Andrew Lessman, who was starting his vitamin company, or had been in business a couple of years already, uh, was looking for a COO. So I came back and I did that for five years and collected a, a, a nice paycheck and did that and supported what was you know my now my wife and my child Devin and then later Kyle came along so there was oh, right. um, the four yeah. of us um, but about five years in I realized that um, again I, I'm an entrepreneur I I don't like working for the man even even though he's even, your buddy even though he's my buddy yeah so um, I I left uh, in '96 with again with no money in the bank a wife and two kids to start Primal Nutrition. And uh, ambitious that was spending risky. habits. If I, I, if I recall, yeah. um, we were we were living well, just on the on the LA vibe, where you're yeah. just making money and spending it. Yeah, yeah. And so then it was time to start a new business. Yep. And you had some. You had zero capital. I had zero, some, I had you had zero some credit capital. cards, right? I had credit cards. I had zero capital. Um, I, I'm sorry. I know you hit me up for a few bucks there. Actually, um, do you recall when you you banged me for a raise when you were my coach and I was your employer? Is that right? Yeah, we were talking on the phone. This was years before that. Yeah, yeah. But I, I had, you know, we'd left the team environment. Oh, right. And I said, Mark, I, I still need your help, man. I want to get you, I, I want to keep going with yep. this journey. And you got me right to the my very best and my national champion and number three rank in the world. And we were talking all the time about, on the coaching realm. And I was paying you a, a certain amount that was equated with what you would pay for your personal trainer services, even yep. though it was on the phone or we'd do a workout and talk right. and stuff. And then you were asking me, so, you know, that, that great year in 91 when I had six wins and uh, won the Coke Grand Prix, which is a big bonus check at the end. He's like, so you're doing pretty good. Like, what kind of, what kind of money are we talking? I'm like, well, Mark, you know, it turns out to be a lot. I'm still adding up my sponsor's things. He's like, all right, well, I need a raise. So we, <laughs> we bumped from 100 to 125 an hour. Oh, there you go. A bargain, a bargain. Yeah. Okay, so 
back up to 96. You're amicably so, uh, partying with Andrew. He's got a great business going. Yep. Uh, but it's time to do your own thing. Yep. So I started Primal Nutrition. Um, I, I, I wasn't completely, I'm going to talk about taking risk. I mean, I knew going in, I already had some consulting gigs. So I was consulting with the Sports Club LA to de- develop a line of products with them. And improve uh, their parking, valley parking situation. Yeah, that too. never happened. Okay. Uh, and I had, um, I had a couple of uh, clients who were doing things like Guthy Renker and uh, some direct response things. So what, during my five years at um, the Winning Combination, uh, which was basically a vitamin you know, supplement company, I, I developed a real skill for, for designing product. So um, now I was basically a supplement designer. So I would be able to uh, create these products that I could uh, for other people on behalf of other people and help them with their marketing and their packaging. So I got a, I had an income in terms of consulting fees while I was creating my own product. Mm. So I created my own product, uh, and it was called Primal Nutrition. And I had five products. Um, they were specific uh, formulas. One was called Extreme Focus. I had Extreme Liver Repair. I had Extreme um, sexual performance. Not that. Oh, no, sorry. Yeah. Uh, I had uh, extreme anti-inflammatory, a bunch of other, mm. um, uh, like five products. And very, very early in the process, realized that I would just combine them all into one master formula. So I created this product called Damage Control Master Formula. And uh, it was a 12-capsule-a-day super supplement. Uh, around that time, I'd, I'd met somebody at an advertising agency who had a radio show in Texas on health. And he asked me to come out to, to Dallas and, and be on his radio show. This guy named uh, Doug Kaufman. He's become a very good friend of mine. And so I go out to Dallas. I do this radio show. I talk about my, my damage control master formula. Uh, and I do so very sort of offhandedly. Oh, by the way, I have this great formula that, uh, you know, just a combination of all the best vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients that you could get in one in one comprehensive formula. And business started to take off. So it was a radio show, not a TV? Uh, so it started out as a radio show. So just first, a radio? First couple of visits was radio. You flew out there to sit in the radio yeah, studio? Yeah, oh, it was crazy. Live? Then, or like yeah, a, it was live. No, it was oh, live. Wow. It was live. So then, um, and by the way, because there wasn't internet, you, you really couldn't do you know, a remote right. other than on the phone. And it wasn't Recorded really on the cell something. phone. Yeah. yeah. So... Um, one day I go out there and he says, oh, by the way, I've got this um, gig over at a TV station. Um, the, the station or the, the network is called Family Net, and it was a sort of a Christian faith and family broadcasting cobbled together network of about 80 small stations around the country. That I think fits it, well with your uh, monkey values. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I, uh, uh, I think there were probably 35 million homes that had access to this, this wow. particular network at the time. So he says, well, I've, I've got a guest spot on a show that's on FamilyNet. The, um, the host, um, I love this. Her name was Karen Hader, and it was a, and it was a show on love. <laughs> and uh, people, they're, they're, they're called, you know, uh, their, their names know. and their birth numbers. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so, so I go out and, and Doug, um, Doug does his show, and, and, it's, and it's live. It's a call-in show. It's live. And we have a great response. And and I'm and I'm not talking about vitamins. I'm talking about you know training and diet and nutrition. And Doug's one of the early guys who's sort of anti-grain guy. Mm. And we're you know chatting back and forth about this. And oh by the way, Mark's got these great vitamins. You should call in and you know you know get them. And and this again before the internet. 
this was how you, how you bought was through mm. pick up the phone and call now. And I had a call center that I had uh, hired to take the calls. Uh, and I come home at the end of the show and I got 150 calls, uh, you know, for, for this product, it was 129 bucks a month. So, um, and by the way, it's, it's at 129 bucks a month. It is an exceptional value. And I know, you know, the product it's been around for 22 years now. It's, it's probably still the best single best high potency multivitamin multimineral in the world. Um, and anyway, I, so at the end of that, um, week I come back and Doug says, um, geez, I got this opportunity now. I can take over. Karen's going to, she's going to um, retire. Say goodbye to the haters. And I'm going to take over the show. Wow. Would you like to be a sponsor? And I said, hell yeah, so I'll sponsor. So that became this beginning of a beautiful friendship that lasted for six or seven years where, where I would go out to Dallas every two weeks and I'd do one live show and one recorded show. So I was on every week uh, with Doug and I would sell a crap load of products and it was fantastic and the company grew um like literally six seven percent a month for a couple of years it was it was, inc- it was incredible i'm so excited to introduce you to paluva this is a new zero drop minimalist shoe with the distinctive five toe design from my main man mark sisson paluvas give you the most authentic barefoot style experience but with sufficient cushioning so you can use them for all manner of daily movement, especially walking and many other fitness and athletic activities. Paluvas are also incredibly stylish, so you get a barefoot shoe that you're not embarrassed to wear around in daily life. It's been so cool to see the popularity of minimalist shoes grow over the recent years, but Paluvas are a step ahead of every other zero-drop wide-box shoe because of the critical feature of individual five-toe articulation, a separate slot for each of your toes. This allows for correct dynamic movement of the foot through the walking or running stride, which is impossible when your toes are encased into a single box, even a wide box. Well, you might know that minimalist shoes have faced controversy in recent years for causing injuries from inappropriate use. So here is the big picture mission. We want to get you walking in paluvas, living in your paluvas, going barefoot in your home or other safe areas as often as possible. Go ahead and use your specialized cushiony running shoes or your basketball shoes, work boots, high heels, things that you want to wear when you want to wear them, but wear your Paluvas as much as possible to reawaken the natural functionality of the human foot to stand, walk, run, and perform. Do you want to try a pair? I'm certain that when you put them on and walk around, you are going to quickly realize that these are the most comfortable, natural shoes that you've ever worn. They are designed to feel like you're, quote, walking barefoot on a putting green please visit paluva.com, that's P-E-L-U-V-A, and use the code BRADPODCAST and get 10% off your first pair. Paluvas, let your feet be feet. 
I want to discuss the incredible benefits of red light therapy and how you can get started with Mito Red Light. Mito, like mitochondria, red light makes the premier light therapy devices in the world and at incredibly affordable prices. I stand in front of my Mito Pro 1500 unit every morning, carefully exposing my eyeballs, other important balls, and my entire body to special wavelengths of red and near for red light. When I tell people about my daily devotion to red light therapy, they typically ask, does this stuff really work? And the answer is yes. And there are thousands of studies supporting its effectiveness. Here's how. It's called photobiomodulation where specific wavelengths of red and near-infrared light, red's visible, near-infrared is not visible, that's why it looks like only half of your panel's working, these wavelengths help mitochondria in cells throughout your body produce more energy and clear waste products more efficiently. Red light exposure helps mobilize nitric oxide trapped in the mitochondria and allows oxygen to return to the cell and increase ATP production. The benefits are proven again and again for skin health, muscle recovery, joint pain, and numerous inflammatory conditions. Red light therapy is also beneficial for circadian rhythm alignment because we generally get far too little direct sunlight and too much indoor blue light from screens and light bulbs at the wrong times. You don't hear much about this benefit of red light therapy, but when I turn on those lights, first thing in the morning. As soon as I wake up, I walk across the hall, I stand in front of the panels, and I feel instantly awake and energized. And believe me, there's a lot of days where Mr. Health Guy here wakes up feeling a little groggy and a little whiny, like I don't want to right get up now and get into my morning exercise routine. But when I stand in front of the lights, in one minute, I swear I feel wide awake. I get all that grogginess out naturally. It's super powerful, super effective, besides all the healing and the cellular benefits. I also love it for being a natural wake-up machine. You have to try red light therapy. I am certain that you will become a devoted user. And guess what? Mito Red Light offers a 60-day no-risk trial period and a special 5% discount for BRAD podcast listeners. Just visit mitoredlight, M-I-T-O, redlight.com, and use the code BRAD on any of their products. Go for it today and get started on your red light journey. And this is a small operation where you're, you're, you're contracting with a manufacturing facility to make this product to your custom specifications. Right, They're sending em- it over here to Malibu. Yeah, I had two employees. Yeah, two employees. Two Haji employees. Baby was one of them? No, I oh. wasn't an employee yet. I had um, uh, Elliot, who Elliot, yeah, the top sales guy. Right. He'll and get you I on had, the phone, and and then I had um, a girl who, um, you know, was sort of the receptionist and keeping the books. Elliot was the salesperson, and that was it. The three of us, and I'd literally pick and pack myself. Right, have the salesperson. I mean, the um, you know the, um, the the gal who was the receptionist pick and pack at the end of the day, uh, and it was crazy. And I, I mean, I was doing millions of dollars in business in those days. And at a very high margin and very successful. Well, in 2004, um, this is eight years into it. Yep. The, you're, just the bottom fell You're out. adjusting to your lifestyle. Right. Uh, bought a home in Malibu, big, much more than I could afford. In, two, <laughs> in 2004, the, um, uh, everything changed. So um, it seemed that the internet was now coming on so strong that people are starting to buy on the internet. 
Um, television now be, there were now 300 channels on cable and dish and whatever. So the interest in a, in a sort of TV show on a small, uh, carved out state, uh, um, network had diminished. Uh, the public's receptivity to call now and in the next 30 minutes that had gone away. And I was like losing business left and right. And then, Doug was having the same experience. So, of course, he had no choice but to raise my rates. And so I was losing money on a regular basis. So we parted ways, and I spent a year thinking, I can do this. I can, I can do a TV show. So I hired a producer. I hired a director. And I hired a, a script writer. And I shot 52 half-hour episodes of a TV show called Responsible Health. We had a set. I had a, I had a, um, a co-host. Um, I had guests, at least two guests every show come in. And so over the course of um, several months, we shot these 52 half-hour episodes. And then I paid to broadcast them on Travel Channel. Did you sneak into the uh, junior college TV studio to do these at night or something like that? No, but it was with uh, Golden West College, which was, um, they have a studio where um, one of the local PBS stations broadcasts out of. And I, I was able to do a deal with them where I could... I could pay for their entire studio for an entire day, including three camera shoot, cameraman, um, control room, um, and all that stuff. Uh, and we would shoot some days. We would shoot eight shows in a day, just back to back. The back guests to are back like to coming in, coming sharing in, yep. the parking pass. Absolutely, it was crazy, and it was so cool. And the shows are great. I mean, I, if I do say so myself, the shows turned out fabulous. And I was the sponsor of the shows. You know, and right. it, it was shot as if it was going to be a syndicated show on health. Because uh, I did want to do a syndicated show. Um, but about three months into airing them, I looked at my bank account and I thought, Jesus, I'm down a, I'm down a million bucks on this. And on the, I'm not, on, the, on the, the TV production of your own. It's yeah. a huge, yeah. huge endeavor. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm out, you know, and I'm not making any money and I'm down a million bucks and it's not, this isn't a scalable model and I had to pull the plug. Where are they airing? Uh, travel channels. So, and that was the big money. Travel channel. No, well, it was. I, I was paying. I think seven thousand. Don't tell anybody now, but seven thousand bucks a half hour per day, every day. <laughs> you just you know for months and months. <laughs> looking at that. Plus the cost of <laughs> looking plus, at that bank account. Plus the cost of producing the TV, the actual right. shooting it. You know? Right. Anyway, so um, that was a great experience. It's one of those things that um, I don't regret doing because I fear that if I was, you know, on my deathbed. 40 years in the future. And I think, oh shit, I wish I'd done that TV show. You know, I wish, I, I wish I'd acted on that. Um, I did. And, you know, I gave it my best. Um, it wasn't to be. And what it did was it led to, hmm, maybe I'll try my hand at this blogging thing. Mm-hmm. And so in 2006, after that massive failure, uh, I started Mark's Daily Apple. So the TV show... You, you, did you air all the episodes no. or did you pull the plug pull after? The, pull the plug after 20 or 30 episodes. I forget what So you was. had the call now. Elliot was waiting by the phone getting orders, yep. but it wasn't 7,000 bucks a day worth of orders or whatever. No, so here's what, here's what you soon realize, that in those days, um, even though Travel Channel was in 95 million homes, if you look at who's watching TV at 8.30 in the morning, it's maybe 20% of people, right? So that's... You know, of the 300 million people that are going to be watching, 20% of that's 60 million. And then if you look at uh, what those people are watching, 80% of them are watching ABC, CBS, NBC, or Fox. 
So then you take the 20% left of the, of, and you start to diminish these numbers. And then you get down to, of the, of the remainder, um, the next tier they're watching is uh, HBO, Showtime, whatever. And then they're watching ESPN, uh, CNN, NBC, uh, MSNBC. By the time you get down to Travel Channel, I guarantee you there were probably 1,400 people watching. So it's a in the background while they're vacuuming, whatever, missing your your key. So pitches. it wasn't it wasn't uh, you know these even though you say well it's in ninety five million homes it doesn't matter, uh, and that was really the I needed thirty five or forty thousand people to be watching in order to get my message across. So I started Mark's Daily Apple, um, and again I thought this is going to be great. I'll have a hundred thousand viewers a day within a year. It'll be awesome. I'll I'll I'll, uh, I'll write something every day for a year, and then I'll be. I'll be good to go. So I start writing and I start grinding stuff out and, and I set this up. And at the end of a year, I had a thousand people a day. That was your viewers? That was your that was unique, unique, yeah. unique visitors. Yep. So the yep. legit, not the number of hits, but unique no, visitors just, yeah, per day. A thousand a day. Yeah. And that Which was a, pretty that was, good. Well, but, but it's a lot yeah. less than I expected. Yeah. But, but, you know, then the next year it was 2,200 a day. And then the next year it was 5,000 and then it was 10. And so within a few years, it doubled and doubled and doubled. And so I got to the point where I had you know, enough of an audience that when we, when we launched the Primal Blueprint, which you and I wrote together, uh, it, um, I had a ready, ready audience for the book. Except they weren't New York City publishers. They were not a ready audience. They said, F you. <laughs> and you went back home with your tail between your legs and you said, F this, we're going to publish it ourselves. Yeah. And then when you announced the book was available, it was at first only available via... Mark's Daily Apple, Primal Blueprint right. shopping cart with right. your add some vitamins. Right, and it, it was on Amazon too. We, we were, oh, but we, it, was, it was your Amazon account. It was my account. Amazon yeah. account, right. So between Mark's Daily Apple or the Primal Blueprint account and, and, uh, and the Amazon account, we sold a lot of books. I mean, I, you know, probably, I, don't, I don't know what the number is. It might be 50,000 copies. It was, a, it was a good number to get for f- full retail price. Mm-hmm. But um, I realized- attract the interest of sure, and the then distributor. That, right, so then I met, I met my, my distributor- uh, Eric Campman. What's up, Eric? Thanks for listening. Midpoint Trade Books uh, at a at a publicity event in New York, and uh, we had a nice chat at, at a dinner table, and and I showed him uh, a mock up of the book, and he said that looks great, and uh, he told me he was a distributor and he was interested in the book, and I said no, nah, I'm not. I'm going to do it myself. So I went home and I continued to plow away, and then about a couple weeks later, I thought, geez, I got to, I have to really take advantage of this distributor relationship. So I called Eric back up and I said, let's, you know, why don't we do this? Why don't you represent the book uh, in distribution? And we signed a contract. And then I said, oh, by the way, Eric, I'm going to run this up to um, a top place on Amazon in a couple of weeks. I'm going to do a promo and I'm going to run it up to Amazon. He goes, he sort of chuckles and said, well, we'll see about that. Uh, And lo and behold, we ran it up to the number one spot on Amazon for a whole day. And not just in the category, but of all the books on Amazon. And he was blown away by that, and and that was uh, that was sort of an indication of what we would do for the next couple of years with the publishing. So we cranked out, I say cranked out, but we put out a, a number of great books, and they did very well. And we became Eric's, you know, of the two hundred publishers that he carries, we're, we were the number one publisher for a couple of years. So now the Mark's Daily Apple is getting lauded as the top resource for this burgeoning movement of Primal and Paleo. Um, the, the space is getting filled up with other experts and leaders, but um, you're, you're, you're riding this wave and uh, the books are cranking out. And then uh, you started to uh, branch out into 
you had the kitchen idea come up at some well, point. No, well, not yet. So, so now I'm thinking still in terms of um, supplements. Like I want people to be, be buying my supplements. Oh, yes. And by the way, so when you started Mark's Daily Apple, it was an incredibly soft sell. It was just a tiny little mansion in text, yep. not even any logo. So it was really meant to be an editorial site, yep. I guess, to build a platform. And then at some point down the road, were you going to ask for a sale or what was your mindset there? Well, the mindset was you had to be very careful of the FTC regulations about uh, combining health information with supplements. Uh-huh. And, I, and I was very mindful of that. So um, it was a very low, low key soft sell. Uh, and, you know, by then we had books as part of the business. We, we were doing seminars we were doing PrimalCon events. Uh, we were trying to different ways to get this information out there. And uh, each of those became its own um, revenue stream, which was nice for the company. But the supplement thing wasn't really catching on uh, the way I had, had hoped. And truth be told, my writing on a regular basis about this ancestral way of living sort of was antithetical to supplement with some of these things. So here I am talking about real food and making your own uh, sauces and making your own dressings and, um, you know, all of this minimalist DIY lifestyle and then advertising the world's highest potency, full spectrum, multivitamin, multimineral, antioxidant, phytonutrient over on, on the other side of the page. So there was a little bit of a disconnect. We still did well, but there was a, a bit of a disconnect. And then around 2014, I thought, geez, I'm, I'm, I'm missing the boat here. I really should be thinking about what's missing in the marketplace in terms of the food that I would like to be eating because it's the sauces, the dressings, and the toppings that really give real food the, the interesting quality. You know, it's like once you get rid of um, all the sugars and all of the added sweeteners, once you get rid of the industrial seed oils, once you get rid of the processed grains, you've got a fairly small list of foods that fit the paleo or primal or ancestral diet. You know, you've got meat, fish, fowl, eggs, nuts, seeds, vegetables, a little bit of fruit. Um, it's probably five kinds of meat you're going to eat next year. You know, lamb, pork, beef, turkey, chicken. There's Wild idea, buffalo, maybe. some of the good stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, name me 17 vegetables you'll eat. Um, and of those 17, you'll have three of them 80% of the time. Mm. So what makes the difference is how you prepare them. The sauces, the dressings, the toppings, the herbs, the spices, the methods of preparation. That's what really makes this whole way of eating sustainable. And no one was making great tasting sauces, great tasting dressings, great tasting condiments that you could put on food and feel good about using literally with reckless abandon. So I set about to create this line of product that you could, it's basically what we call food enhancers. These are these are products that you can add to real food and not only improve the flavor and palatability, but improve the healthfulness of them. So by adding healthy fats to your salad instead of these nasty industrial seed oils, by adding um, you know, organic eggs and, healthy, and, and avocado oil in the form of mayonnaise to your uh, tuna salad or to your potato salad or your egg salad, um, to be adding a, um, an organic, unsweetened, great tasting ketchup to a burger or to sweet potato fries or whatever. These were the things that we felt were missing from the, from, from the marketplace where a, uh, a increasingly discerning buying public was, was starting to go where, look, 
we recognize that we're trying to avoid all this crap. Where are the, where are the products right. that, that fulfill that need? You say this in every book, Mark, about yeah. avoiding the vegetable oil. Yeah, what and do we And then we go get Paul Newman's red wine and olive oil dressing. You look on the back and it's a, a blend of canola and cotton yeah. seed and maybe a little olive. Yeah. Distressing as heck. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that became the impetus for um, Primal Kitchen. And we launched in February, 2015 with just the mayonnaise. Um, I went to my, my, my co-packer and I said, uh, you know, this is a real novel product. No one's done anything like this. It's avocado oil-based mayonnaise made with organic eggs and uh, um, organic vinegar from non-GMO beets, a little bit of sea salt, some rosemary extract. Um, it's 12 ounces and it's going to be 10 bucks. What's the smallest run we can do? Because I'm not sure we're going to be able to sell this. Yeah. And he said, well, we can do, the smallest run we can do is 12,000 jars. I'm like, I rolled my eyes like, whoa, <clears throat> crazy. Okay. So we did 12,000 jars. And basically the short story is we sold out in like 10 days uh, through Thrive Market and through our own platform. So we realized we were really onto something that, that the public was um, hungering for, um, no pun intended. And since then, We've, you know, we followed that up with uh, collagen bars and salad dressings and colla- uh, collagen powders. We now have condiments in the form of, uh, we have a, a great tasting ketchup, a, a, a mustard. We have barbecue sauces. We have uh, steak sauce. We have like 25 products in the line mm. right now. And it's been a crazy ride that has sort of overwhelmed your life or at least your business day, this growth of the Primal Kitchen uh, brand, which was just an offshoot of the many other things you've been doing. But that's how it happens. I mean, it, 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 you know, it's like when I say you, you just, you have to, if you're an entrepreneur, you have to keep moving forward. You have to keep looking for the next opportunity. And I'm going to, I'm going to tell you that I missed this opportunity probably four years earlier. I just Mm -hmm. kept my, my myopic tunnel vision on how do I sell supplements? How do I sell supplements? And I'm, and I literally, like completely blinked and missed this opportunity for food. Now I didn't miss it because I finally hit it, but but only until 2014. Uh, this is how businesses get started. It's like sometimes you start with one product, and the next thing you know, it morphs into something else. I mean, you know, Apple Computer had the Mac and the Lisa, and 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 it was the iPhone that really, or the iPod mm-hmm. that really took Apple to the next level, and then the iPhone and all these things that maybe weren't even part of. Steve Jobs' vision from day one, but he's open to the possibilities. And how do you manage this uh, this crazy growth? I mean, it seems like the complexity of your daily life from working with you and knowing you closely, and we'd be sweating over how to reword this paragraph on one page of the book, and then getting into these events, which are such a a, a trivial part of this massive business that's growing. How does how do you manage all that? Um, so I went from seven, eight, nine employees four years ago to 75 now. And I have- Oh, seven, eight, nine for the total enterprise. For the total enterprise. The people everything shipping we the did, supplements everything. and the publishing team. The, the entire company was yeah. seven or eight or nine people. Now it's 75? 75, yeah. You know everybody's name? Uh, no. Um, but do they I, know you? Yeah. Do you show up in Oxnard? Do, yeah. do they bow and stop yeah. the production no, line? No, they, they know me. But that's because my picture's on every, <laughs> the They better on, know you. On every label. Some guy's like, hey, can you sign in, please? Yeah. You, you don't know me? Yeah. Uh, okay, you're not paying attention. No, but it's, it's, it's literally hiring the right people. And, you know, it's a lesson that I continue, I, I, I mean, I learned it a long time ago, but it continues to be reinforced that, that the success of a business is 
is basically uh, revolves around the, the quality of employees that you hire and, and their dedication to the mission and their creativity and their willingness to, uh, their loyalty, their willingness to go, you know, to the mats for the, for the company. That's really uh, where we've gotten to where we are right now. So now my, my managing is I'm, I basically allocate resources. So I sign checks and I approve, you know, expenditures. Um, I love to do the R&D. That's my favorite part of what we do. So I'm, I'm in the kitchen concocting something that I think would be a great next product. And then obviously it has, there, there are other steps before we get to production, but that's how it kind of starts. What about the hires that didn't work out versus the ones that did? What have you learned? Um, oh yeah, there've been, there've been some hires that I thought. That Not I, just hires, but like business associations where we hired the PR agent that did oh my F God. all for us no, and no, no, took no, us no, for no, a lot no, of money. I mean, no, I mean, it's, it's, that's, you know, that's part of, that's part of the process. That's part of the heartache of being in business is sometimes you make mistakes, you just move on. And mistakes in hiring can be costly because you spend a lot of time trying to qualify a potential hiree and then you spend time training them. And then if it doesn't work out, you've got to, you know, you got to, you got to start over again, literally. So to me, that's the most important part of being successful in business is the team that you assemble. And I think, you know, a lot of, um, venture capitalists and private equity investors would, would, would agree that they more, more than anything, they invest in the team hmm. than in necessarily the concept or the, or the product. Um, it seems like a lot of times when these mergers occur, they disregard the team and they take the product and run with it and screw it up. There's that. And, and that sometimes is, is a, uh, an artifact of, um, Sometimes it takes a certain mindset and a certain entrepreneur to grow a company to a certain level. And beyond that level, it takes an entirely different mindset mm. and an entirely different skill set to get to the next level. So quite often, especially in tech, you'll see um, C-suite replacements every, every round of financing because what, what it took to get them, you know, it takes scrappiness and budget cutting and all this other stuff to get out of, out of the gates and prove your concept and, and be successful. But then, you know, you, then you want um, some other skills or some other attributes to take you from 50 million to 500 million, say. So now you're kind of in this position where you've built this thing with a small team. I, I mean, 75 is still a still small. small. Yeah. And where, where are we headed in the future? What's your vision? I mean... <laughs> My vision is no less than I want to be one of the largest food companies in the country. Um, I think because I think we've been given permission because of the ten years that I spent building the brand before I launched the product. Mm. Um, we're already we're, we're already in nine thousand stores across the country. So we're in Kroger and Publix and Safeway. We're in Costco. We're in uh, Whole Foods, Sprouts, uh, Rayleigh's, Wegmans, um, and you know. Um, Many others that I that I haven't mentioned. Uh, we do very well in all those stores. We're in six different aisles. You know, we're in the we're mm. in the ketchup aisle. We're we're, we're, we're mustard. We're in the um, salad dressing aisle. We have mayonnaise. We have bars, energy bars, yeah. energy bars. Uh, you know, protein powders. We have um, one of the best selling uh, specialty oils in Kroger with our avocado oil. We have spray oil. Uh, it's 
it's crazy. And, and we're doing well in all of the aisles that we're in because people are understanding that this is about a lifestyle. This is a, this is a lifestyle brand. It's not just a salad dressing brand. This is a brand that, that looks for opportunity to serve the public uh, wherever there is a need to be met because there's a lack of product fulfilling that need. No offense to Best Foods or Paul Newman's or the other crap that we've been consuming without, without appropriate choice for something that's healthy, but that's, that's your approach, I guess. Yeah, yeah. no, I, we just want to be the, the, the best choice in every aisle that we're in, Yeah, full stop. Yeah. And so those aisles will continue to expand or you'll be uh, entertaining ideas to extend into this product category, that product category. Right now we have to sort of pull back because I, I have so many ideas about where we want to be. <laughs> We just kind of, kind of have to fill out the aisles that we're in before we go to the next, the next arena. But it's been really um, gratifying. I mean, I'll share with you. I don't know when this podcast airs, but just this morning, uh, there's a big uh, food convention on the East Coast mm. um, called so, Ex- September 2018. We're here, uh, Expo East, and uh, we just won the biggest award in the in in the expo. Um, the Consumer Choice Award for the for our ketchup, um, and we also, by the way, won that uh, the industry award for the best condiment, which is the same product. So we won two awards at this at this thing, and that's that's the recognition that we're getting for making great tasting products that are that are better for you. So we have so much content out there. We've talked about your health and fitness and your views on keto and all that kind of stuff. So we can go direct the listener to search for the many other podcasts, but we should kind of wind up figuring out what are you still doing that's working and how do you manage your, you're this entrepreneur that's slam busy building a business, but you also have the, the physical and the life balance aspect going, which is, I would venture to say it's unusual. Well, I guess it's unusual, but I don't, uh, I don't feel like, that, that I'm um, sacrificing in any area. I mean, I feel like I get my work done. Again, it gets back to having a great team. The, the better team you have, the, be- the less actual work the, the head guy has to do, right? But I will say that all through my, um, my lean years, when I was starting the company, uh, when, I, when I left the, the, the well-paying job to start from scratch at zero, and I had a wife and two kids, um, the major thing is I always, I still spent time with the family. I still went to my kids' soccer practices. I went to their games. Um, I went boogie boarding with them on the weekends. Uh, we did a lot of stuff as a family because I, I recognized early on that the only reason that I'm really doing all this investment in myself and is, to, is to make a better life for my family. Well, if I sacrifice 20 years of family life to make money, and they're off doing their own thing, that's completely beside the point. And so I've, I've tried to create this balance where um, I, you know, I live my life uh, in a way that I, I, have a, I certainly have a routine, but I go to the gym, I work out, I, I go paddle when I can. Sometimes I can't, that's okay. Um, I have a standing uh, ultimate Frisbee game at least once a week, um, probably the most fun I have all week. Um, are you saying these Miami guys are as good or at the level of the incredible Malibu yeah, game that wore yeah. me out and I, sent me 
sent me home vowing that I may never go back if I want to focus on speed golf at this point because you just get drilled for two hours. Yeah. So Miami's got it bringing it too. As good or better. How'd you find him? Did you like hire these guys? Like- Ultimate ultimatefrisbee.com or ultimatepickup.com. <laughs> they're just, there's players out there. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. 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 And you're probably one of the older gentlemen on the field. I suspect I'm one of the older gentlemen. I don't think there's anybody much older than me. Yeah. So unfortunately we're not seeing this, um, these, these values as much as we're seeing the overworked, harried parent that seems to be sacrificing family life if they want to be successful in their careers or they're putting the 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 the, uh, the brakes on and they're 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 getting the the other parts of their life handled like they're they're great at surfing but they're trying to find the next job those are choices i mean i i can point you to a number of very successful female entrepreneurs who drop their kids off at school who cook them dinner every night who you know tuck them in and run multi-million dollar businesses. So it's not like it's an impossible task. It's a choice. And it's a time management choice. And it's, um, I think a lot of times, you know, the concept of, well, I worked, I worked till 10 o'clock last night. If you actually look at how much work got done, you know, they were there and they were whatever, but, uh, you know, researching or surfing the internet for some, whatever. You know, the the amount of work that actually gets done is a is a relatively small amount of work. And if you can if you can do that amount of work in a relatively small amount of time, it frees up time to go to the gym, to have to have a family life, to to have a social life outside. Um, the the life of an entrepreneur, I, you know, you have to you have to be dedicated and you have to be willing to to do some you know to put some long hours in once in a while. But I just don't think that it requires this this um, inordinate amount of work and this inordinate amount, amount of time away from pursuing the rest of your life, which is actually the enjoyable part. Well, you've, you've written about how when you're out paddling is when you get your, often get some breakthroughs in yeah. thought process and comes to the, the problem solving part is facilitated by living that balanced life. Yep. So if you're missing that and you're poor at prioritization because you lack sleep and you're working for too long without physical break, um, you're you're losing your time management and your productivity. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, sleep. Let's talk about sleep. I mean, that's the other thing that a lot of entrepreneurs brag about is you know how how little sleep they get. And I'm like, well, Jesus. I mean, that's you can do that a little for a little while, but it catches up to you and bites you in the ass at some point but you're not going to notice because you're not getting enough sleep to notice how unproductive you are. And that's how it happens as well. Yeah. As well. yeah. Um, Elon Musk said it's, it's difficult to be useful all the time. It's a challenge. In other words, were you useful today? Were you productive today? And it can get away from us with all this uh, overstimulation. I think hyperconnectivity, I was telling you before we started recording, like my email windows open all day when we're trying to re- research and work on our next book. Yeah. And I, I realize it's a problem, but I'm, I'm still talking about it. It still happens. It's very frustrating. Well, I mean, that's, a, that, that's an interesting point of view or an interesting concept. How do you measure your usefulness in the course of a day? You know, if, he's, if Musk says it's difficult to be useful during the day or it's find those times, um, yeah, it's, it's, that might be a metric that somebody would use to say, well, how can I be of use? How can I be of service? How can I, you know, Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk says, you know, the only role of CEO is to put out fires because oh. if everything's going smoothly, 
you've done the right hire, right? And so your job is just to handle shit when it comes down. How and do you like that? I, I feel like that's how it is a lot of times too. Like the, when things are going smoothly, everything's great. And then I don't even have to do anything because it's, I put a system, a machine into place that, that when it runs, when it runs well, everything hums along smoothly and I don't have to do anything. And that's why I can go out, I can go out and paddle and I can do whatever I want and not really worry about anything. But when, when the stuff hits a fan is when it all of a sudden becomes like imperative to get in and make decisions. You know, how much money do we spend on that? How, do we fix that? Do we get rid of that? Do we hire a lawyer for this? Do we, you know, all of these sort of um, one-off decisions that have to be made on the fly. But that's the exciting part about being right. an entrepreneur. Right. You know, it's that, um, it's, it's uh, as von Clausewitz said about war, you know, it's like long periods of boredom interspersed with brief moments of sheer terror. Not exactly like that as, a, as an entrepreneur, but... It's ups and downs for sure. What'd you learn from the restaurant venture? Uh, wow. Um, well, a lot of things, but most of them I had already, I had already learned before, which is the sad part. Uh, <laughs> pick, before you went into it, yeah, you mean? Pick, pick, you you, you yeah, went pick, against your values or I your, did, I did. It your was, it was counter, intuition or I something? It was against my intuition. Uh-huh. That's go, so number one, go with your gut. My gut was always like, this is probably not a good idea, but... <laughs> you had gut dysfunction going into it. Yeah, your... I got dysfunction. <laughs> um, uh, pick the right partner. That was a big issue for me. Um, uh, you know, um, know, when, know when to pull the plug. Oh. You know, know when, when the, um, this is not going to work and you have to start unwinding. When was that? You're saying you pulled the plug too late. Yes. I mean, you pulled the plug. I pulled the plug, yeah. right. right, you, right. We can't go eat there today. Yeah. Yeah. But at some point, did you linger on hoping for a miracle or something? Yeah. 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 So there's, there's part of that is just a a better analysis of what's going on. And and then I guess ultimately, um, you know, my fault is in not, is taking my eye off the ball. Like I just assumed again, that I'd hire the right people, hire the the right right people, right partner. And I'd set it up in a way that I could just stand back and let it happen. And I would be the brand. And um, it didn't. It didn't work out that way. So there's no going back. It's gone. You lost a few bucks. They had some stress and all yep. that. Yep. How do you um, control your thoughts at this point? Not to get not to get mired in negativity or whatever. No, just onward and upward. I mean, it's like it's it's very. Uh, you know, it is what it is, as they say in New York. And uh, uh, lesson learned. Um, lots of other cool stuff to be thankful for mm. uh you can't can't hit a home run every time um in fact like i like you said and and i agree you only need one really you only need one home run in a lifetime um so i'm you know i'm fine with it i'm totally reconciled by the way for six months i was miserable uh-huh. as it was as it was unwinding but yeah um now that it's unwound i'm i'm fine what do you say to people that, that seem to get stuck and they can't get over it? Whatever it was, I mean, it was a, a, a broken relationship, uh, get, get terminated from a, a job, whatever, and they're, you see them a year, two years, five years later, and they're still suffering. Well, that's too bad because that's, I can see suffering in the moment and I can see, you know, getting, getting through it with, uh, um, you know, some amount of pain and suffering. But, but at the other end of it, typically people, unless they're, um, you know, resentful and hating and, and unwilling to forgive or move on, 
that's no one else gets hurt by that except themselves. Well said. Yeah. Mark Sisson, the ultimate Mark Sisson podcast. Thank you for thank you for sitting so long. Great, great stuff, man. Great. Good talk. Love it. All right. Thank you for listening, everybody. Hey, do you want to hear an advertisement? If I sing it, would that be a little more palatable? I know that we sometimes get annoyed listening to ads on podcasts. Go ahead and hit the plus 15 or the plus 30 second button if you don't want to hear this. But I've also been exposed to some cool products and services when I listen to ads on certain podcasts. So once in a while, or more than that, I'm going to talk about stuff that I really use and enjoy and completely support. No BS. I absolutely promise that to you. And here's one thing I'd like to talk about which are the awesome online multimedia educational courses that I created and host at Primal Blueprint. You can learn all about them, primalblueprint.com, and click on the Courses button, especially the brand new 21-Day Primal Reset. And this is kind of our entry point into turning around your diet and your lifestyle, getting healthy escaping from the disastrous condition of carbohydrate dependency that plagues us in modern life and becoming fat adapted, but you're led step by step with a series of videos every single day with objectives for 21 days to clean up your diet, ditch those bad foods, those grains, sugars, and refined vegetable oils, get your exercise programmed optimized, and believe me, it's not that difficult. It doesn't take that much time. A five-minute workout can deliver awesome benefits, And I'll also take you through all the complimentary lifestyle practices, like getting your sleep habits dialed in. It's a lot of fun. I guide you every step of the way with great video content. That's just one of the courses. We also have the one for endurance athletes, all about the world's leading experts and everything from the Primal Endurance book brought to life. And of course, the Keto Reset, the New York Times bestselling book about going keto if you've already built some momentum with a low-carb diet. Just go over there and check it out. And because you're listening to this ad, I'm going to give you a super duper top secret 20% discount off of your enrollment on any of those courses. And that is the code BRAD20. Tell your friends, go for it. Make some changes in life. Do it the right way with complete guidance from me. If you're sick of my voice from the podcast, maybe it's time to switch over to video. But please go over to primalblueprint.com and check out the courses link of the great educational opportunities we have. Thank you for listening to this lengthy ad, and I appreciate you listening to the show too. So Chris Kelly, Nourish, Balance, Thrive, we're, we're talking about health and you're telling me a funny story about your picky four-year-old daughter that won't eat unless there's Primal Kitchen uh, condiments on the table. It's true. My daughter will not eat unless there's f***ing the Primal Kitchen Wilder. <laughs> it's, it's this cute thing, actually, she does. We have a local state park called Wilder Ranch. Oh, yeah. And uh, she calls the ranch dressing Wilder Ranch dressing. <laughs> we, 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 there's no way we're going to correct her on that. It's just too perfect. It's so so endearing. Uh, how old um, is she? She's four. Oh my god! So she likes like the mayo on. A oh yeah, she so she loves those. So we love them as well. We have uh, we we eat them all the time. We eat the mayo. We eat the balsamic. We eat the the ranch. Um, the avocado oil we use all the time. And, and so you know that's completely genuine. And I don't mind talking about that because you took the pain in the ass out of condiments. I really appreciate that. 
what an authentic spot from Chris Kelly at Nourish Balance Thrive. And yes, Primal Kitchen, you can call it Wilder Ranch Dressing if you want. <laughs> and uh, we'll send five cents of the proceeds over to that beautiful state park because they're, they're trying to make ends meet in Santa Cruz Mountains. Thank you very much, Chris. <laughs> it's my pleasure.